That really was something with the dancing girl, wasn't it? What exactly did that mean? I'll explain it to you. Remember Lil's wearing a sour face. What do you mean? Her face had a sour look on it. We're gonna have problems with the local authorities. I'm not gonna be receptive to the FBI. Both eyes blinking means trouble higher up. The eye is the local authority. Sheriff and a deputy be my guess. You notice she had one hand in her pocket, which means they're hiding something. And the other hand made into a fist, which means they're gonna be belligerent. Lil was walking in place, which means there's gonna be a lot of legwork involved. Cole said Lil was his mother's sister's girl. Now what's missing in that sentence? The uncle. Not Cole's uncle, but probably the sheriff's uncles in federal prison. Let me ask you something, Stanley. Did you notice anything about the dress? The dress was altered to fit her. I noticed a different colored thread where the dress was taken in. Gordon said you're good. Taylor dresses are code for drugs. Oh. You notice what was pinned to it? Good. But I can't tell you about that. Can't. No, I can't. Drop it. Duncan and both come correct. Hey there, listeners. Uh, it's been a while. Well, it's been two weeks, and that seems like a while. Uh, it's your friend Bo here. I'm joined, as always, by one Duncan McLeish. Hello, dear listeners. <laughs> All right. Who? I tried. I tried to stick that. I tried to stick it back, and I started going kind of semi-essential, and then I realised that I'm Scottish, and my voice is like sandpaper on a chalkboard. Yeah, um, uh, like there are great Scottish poets. There are many great Scottish poets, Bo. But most... watch, watch where your sentence treads after that. <laughs> but I'm what I'm going to say, Duncan, is that most Scottish poetry does not tend to be of the romantic nature and slightly more dour, nay, apocalyptic at times. Hmm. Sir William Scott is known as one of the greatest writers of the, the romantic era of literature. One he... of the forefathers of it. Well, sure. There are exceptions to every rule, Duncan. I'm not saying there there hasn't been a romantic <laughs> Scott ever. I'm just saying he was eventually driven from his country. Or her. <laughs> it's, it's apt that we are talking about, like at the start of this episode, about um, authors, writers, um, because a, a vast portion of what we're going to discuss tonight is in text form as opposed to celluloid form. Yeah, right. It, we're like it. It seems like a real grown-up, smarty pants podcast now that we're talking about books. Yeah, but James is in uh, is in the movie. So James is also in the book, one of the books. He's, well, yeah. he's in both books, and <laughs> and both books. <laughs> Secret World sums up James exactly right. So we'll <laughs> get like into one that. of our favorite quotes ever. I had to post it on the Facebook group page as soon as I as soon as I heard that. I was like, this is the funniest fucking thing ever. Because right. it's it, it's true. Yeah, and James. Then I was like that spot on. I'm glad to th- I'm glad to I'm glad to get to the the point where even the writers of the show 
have come to the same conclusion as me and Bo. That's, that's what I, I like to know that, that that's that's where everyone's going. Yeah, the the line James was never a reader uh, was one of my favorite things in any of the stuff we're going to talk about tonight. It's going to get dark, man. You know, you know what like threw me straight away was like how dark the Secret Diary of Laura Palmer is. And when oh you yeah. Consider when you consider that Jennifer Lynch wrote it in between season one and season two, when she was 22 years old, the acorn did not fall before, fall far from the lynch tree No, well, that one, because it is fucked up. Very Holy much shit. so. It, yeah, it's it's dark in the way that Firewalk With Me is. I like uh-huh. Having read that now and then watching Firewalk With Me, uh, although I did it crisscross, I did it vice versa, um, it, it, like it totally informed that recent viewing of Firewalk with me of like, Oh yeah, this is like, they had that character nailed in secret diary. And yeah. that's kind of what we see. It's, um, it's quite interesting. Cause the, I, I've been like, I went through, I've got the collector's edition box set at Twin Peaks. So tons of additional content on that. So I've been kind of polishing off the last of that box set, like the last bits of um, the special features and stuff. And um, it was quite interesting that in an interview, conducted after the movie um so maybe when it was first released on dvd potentially i don't know but they were speaking to shirley and that's one of the things that she said was she's like i had a copy of the secret diary of laura palmer with me when we made firewall with me it was basically my bible for that character she goes and there are not many people that get to play a role where they have such a rich background written down that i can just you know what's my motivation for the scene and just read through some of that and then and really encapsulate the character. And what I like to hope from this episode that we're going to do, Bo, is Uh-oh. that... Well, this is, <laughs> you shouldn't have expectations, Duncan, but go ahead. Well, my expectations are that people will hopefully have watched Firewalk with me and given it a fair shake, because it is a movie that, even prior to us even starting this, I held in quite high regards. I, I think the, the Firewalk with me is actually a really fucking good movie. Um... I think it's a great horror movie. I, yeah, I totally agree. I think it's a it, it's an effective horror film. Yeah, I don't think people automatically think of it being in that genre. It's a people, it's a fucking haunted house movie, essentially. It really is. And when people talk about like nineties horror, you know, the early nineties horror, and while there, you know there wasn't a lot of good quality content, Fire What With Me is never mentioned as a title ever. And I don't know why. I, d- I don't know why. I don't know if people just imagine it as being like an extension of the TV show. And because the TV show had some elements of horror, but it wasn't considered a horror TV show. It just gets lumped in with that. But yeah, it's it's trippy as balls. Uh, so on this episode, Bo, uh, for our listeners out there, we're covering a fucking shitload of content. We're doing The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer. We are doing Fire Walk With Me. We're doing The Missing Pieces which is the hour and a half of deleted and extended scenes that David mm-hmm. Lynch released in 2014 uh, of you know the, the filming of Firewalk With Me. And then we're finishing off with the secret um, history of Twin Peaks, which was the Mark Frost novel that came out last year, uh, 2016, in advance of of the, the new season of Twin Peaks. This is us really putting the, the, the kind of final stamp down before we start reviews of the, you know the brand new Twin Peaks season, Twin Peaks: The Return, 
Um, and in this Twin one, Peaks is the returnsies. Can we christen it that? <laughs> we can do it the returnsies as long as there's no backsies. Um, but like, is <laughs> uh, this is the, the the kind of final, the final kind of the final reckoning of information prior to the new show going out. Now it's worth yeah. noting that I found out this week that Mark Frost has already got a a, a kind of a Twin Peaks dossier novel coming out and I believe it's October which will apparently fill in the background of what happened to all the characters that we know in between season one and season uh, season three so that that's coming out and it looks like it's going to be in the same fantastic collector's version um, as the as the secret history but apparently it's going to it's going to give us a bit more back story to, to where a lot of our characters, our beloved characters, end up when we move into that new season. But there's going to be a lot of info dump on this show. There's going to be a lot of us talking conspiracy shit, which I love. Yeah. Um, but we get to talk about, like I say, a movie which was booed at Cannes, um, which was universally panned by critics. But, like, with a lot of Lynch stuff, um, not everything by Lynch, but, like, with a lot of Lynch stuff, which is at first... Um, kind of poo-pooed by by reviewers and critics alike has found its place and has found an appreciation with new critics who see it for what it is, which was a really daring experiment in taking something which was made for TV and, and twisting it and giving us the the horror that led up to the event um, which I think is quite fascinating. And there is so, so much to talk about fire what with me yeah it's fucking bananas right it's it's I, too much material for one show quite frankly yeah but we're it gonna really is. we're gonna try to do it and and yeah, we could do this i, I do feel this like goal. we can because i don't think we have to spend there are things to discuss about secret diary of laura palmer but we yeah. don't have to spend forever talking about it no you know we're not gonna go scene by scene on a book so no. Then we're going to hit Firewalk with me, which will be like our normal episode presentation, uh, broken up by ejaculation. Oh, right. Oh. Um, as as we just pause to marvel at certain scenes. Like, there is a sequence in Firewalk with me that I think is just one of the best sequences ever put to film. Uh, I can't wait to discuss it. So, But before we discuss any of that, before we launch on this mad experiment to truly talk about the mythology of Twin Peaks, something like experts, now that we have <laughs> crammed all of this knowledge into our brains so that little pine trees are coming out of our ears. I found that I'm obsessed with the show now. I really I am too. Like it's I I've reached the level now where if I talk to, about Twin Peaks with someone, I want to get the bullshit out of the way. <laughs> and start talking about like, okay, let's just start talking Black Lodge shit. Because yes, Laura Palmer was killed, blah blah blah. <laughs> Leland Palmer sang a lot; it's great. But let's get into the shit and what's going on. It, and yeah, it's so weird how like because I was always a fan, but like I I find myself thinking about it a lot even when I'm not, and I know it's because I've immersed myself in quite a lot of it, but I find my, I actually was legitimately bummed out when I watched, I watched the final interviews on the last disc of my box set, and I was genuinely like, ah, 
Like that's that box set done now. Um and I just feel like I don't know. I kinda actually, I actually hate this is what I've kind of grown to, to, to realise is I hate the TV network and the people responsible for cancelling the show. I think that show could have went on for years, man, and just been quirky and weird in a way which... Or the fact that the movie didn't do well, so Lynch didn't get to make the two planned sequels that he had for it. And I mean, if had, had he done that, there's a very good chance it wouldn't have retained the cult status it has, and it would never have had the return series that it has just now, but... Yeah, I, every, I, I'm, everything happens I, for a reason, Duncan. Yeah, but I, when you hear Lynch speak about it, it's like, I want to be in that place. I want to be in the place that Lynch, like, where he just starts, he just starts talking about it, and there's something in his eyes, there's a gleam in his eyeball um, of this this world and this idea and this vision which we are living out now like as an extension but we lost like 25 years of having that experience Um, but the the word continues to be though that Twin Peaks The Return is Lynch being Lynch it is oh god yeah so yes you're right it would have been crazy to see what four, five, six seasons of Twin Peaks would have looked like. It would have been, to me, even more intriguing to see the two films after Fire Walk with me. Yeah, yeah. Because it was getting dark, and if he was going to do, like, pick up the end of season two in the second film, oh, Duncan. I believe there was talk of that. Mm. I also believe there was talk of expansion out on the, the Bowie character, which... Fantastic, great, wonderfully intriguing. So yeah, yeah we, we have a we have a lot to talk about. Right, but right. this is so, the usual point of the show where you ask me if there's something that I've watched that isn't Twin Peaks. Yeah, let, let's. Uh, <laughs> we'll keep it quick. We'll keep it lively. Uh, what have you seen recently that is worth noting before we embark on the impossible task of truly explaining Twin Peaks? Well, once again, it's another TV show because I've been doing a lot of movie watching for the the Teapot's Top Ten series that's that's carrying on just now, which requires a huge amount of time spent watching older movies. Oh yeah, and um, by the way, uh, shout out to Darren for all the bear pictures. Thank you so much. So many, you know, it 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 wasn't until about the fourth or fifth post that I realised why he was doing it. I just thought it was just playing around. I was like, "There's a bear team. I don't get the bear team." Um. And then I was actually listening back to the episode today, which I do like every every episode I put a podcast under the stairs. I listen to it while I'm editing, I then post the show, and I give it like a day or two, and then I listen back to the show after it's been released. And I take pointers of like purely from a did I do well in this? That you know, could I have went in more detail? Is there too much detail? You know, like these sort of things, just to take notes for the next time I record. Um, and it was it's a throwaway comment you make that spawned basically about six hours of memes on the page. Uh, so there you go. Um, but yeah, so uh, the TV show that I watched in its entirety last weekend was Ozark, which is the new Netflix show. Oh uh, uh, yeah, I've watched most of that. I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. I think Jason Bateman's excellent in it. I think it has a very dark kind of kick you in the balls tone which which kind of resonated with me uh, delighted to see the great Scottish actor Peter Mullen um, 
playing one of the most sinister characters I've ever seen Peter Mullen play. Uh, those that are fans of horror cinema will know Peter Mullen from Session 9, um, where he plays the, 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 the Scottish guy in Session 9, but he's playing essentially a, a kind of redneck hillbilly character, but don't get them muddled up uh, in the show, or you'll see why. Um, but yeah, thoroughly enjoying that. I think that's, a, that's, a, that's that show has the potential for for a good couple of seasons, I think. Um, it's been pitched as Breaking Bad meets Fargo. I don't think it's like Fargo at all. It's um, aiming so straight for Breaking Bad. It really, really is. And I think that's the market it should probably aim for because Breaking Bad left a hole uh, for people that people have been cram- kind of clambering for. Um, I don't think it's as good as Breaking Bad, but if we're comparing first season Breaking Bad, first season of Ozark, I think Ozark's better than the first season of Breaking Bad. That's which means only simply wrong, but go on. I think I'm right, uh, but that's you've not finished it yet, so you don't know where it goes. Fair enough. So, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, uh, finish it first, then come back. Um, but yeah, I think Ozark is to me it has an idea of where it's going, and I like where that idea has taken us. And like I say, I think Jason Bateman is a great actor and I like to see him in more serious roles. I thought he was excellent in The Gift. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's really good in this as well. Um, and I think the cast is really good. I think it's, Laura a, it's a well played. Yeah, I think she's brilliant. And she's not necessarily playing against a type cast that she is. <laughs> no. You know what I mean? She's 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 very well cast in that because she's played that character many times. But it plays well off Bateman's character. But um, there's a series of characters in that that I really like. The young girl who comes from the kind of troubled family thinks she's excellent. Mm-hmm. I think she's been cast incredibly well. And like I say, Peter Mullen and his crew uh, up on the farm are brilliant as well. So, yeah, as setting a scene for the first season, I think they've done a really good job at it. And I'm looking forward to seeing where a season two, a season three takes us. Um, as long as they keep kind of expanding out on what they have just now, they're fine. I don't think, I think they've set enough of a kind of Breaking Bad-esque story and tone just now that that's fine. I think they can now start going off and really capturing their own identity, uh, which I would look forward to seeing. So yeah, that's that's really what I've watched in the interim. And that, that Preacher Season 2 it continues to wow me week on week. And that Game of Thrones continues mm. to wow me week yeah. on week. So yeah, it's a, it's a great so, time so to it's be watching been... TV just now. It's been a couple of weeks, and we talked about the initial Game of Thrones episode. So remind me on the back end of this, and we'll, we'll very, very quickly general impressions of the past couple of episodes. Um, yep. Uh, so I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. In anything more about the Ozark? Or uh, hey, no, no that that is me. That is me. What have you been checking out, Bo? What what horrible little movie which. You shouldn't have watched when you could have watched something really, really good. Have you spent your time watching one? Funny you should mention that because I did watch a movie that I shouldn't have watched and should <laughs> have uh, watched something else instead. Uh-oh. Um, qu- quick shout out. I got to go see uh, The Dead Zone over the weekend on the big screen. Oh, nice. And that was real fun. And I only mentioned that so I can hear you say... The ice is going to break! Perfect. And... Uh, the movie that I shouldn't have watched, and I did, Duncan, was a movie called Life uh, with Idris Elba and Ryan Reynolds and Rebecca Ferguson and legitimate actors and a big budget and a, 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 a bunch of fancy special effects. 
And is this the is this the the alien ripoff? Yes, and it is very much an alien ripoff. Sometimes almost too blatantly. Mm. It has a couple of good moments in it. Like I, I don't think any movie of this scale is just utter garbage for the most part. There are exceptions, but like there are moments in this that are still good. The special effects are kind of cool. Um, the alien is kind of a shitty alien though. Uh, and just isn't like, it's just a big goopy starfish for most of the movie and, and not in a cool way. Um, although it looks probably more accurate to what alien life would look like, but you know, it's a alien killing astronauts movie. I don't need it to be realistic. I need it to be scary. Um, So, yeah, there's there's some good moments in it, but it, it's a real disappointment, both as kind of a monster movie, because that's ultimately what it is. But it, it wants to be a little highfalutin and it's not good enough at being highfalutin to elevate the kind of schlock parts of the film. Um, so it ends up just being this a little too big for its britches kind of schlock film. And, and yeah, and even up to and including the ending it is so predictable um that it's real frustrating um so yeah don't if you haven't seen the movie live i don't know maybe you'll like it but i would say just watch alien again it's a way better film uh or for that matter watch saturn 9 which is also a better film than life <laughs> and that's a movie where kirk douglas has a killer robot and fucks farrah fawcett a bunch um yep. So, you know, that's my recommendation. The official Duncan and Bo go to Twin Peaksies <laughs> recommendation of the week is not your Jason Bateman starring Breaking Bad clones. It's Saturn Nine. Um, I I'm, I don't I don't mean to sound like I'm shitty on Ozark. I think it's I think that it feels so tonally like Breaking Bad, and doesn't quite have those chops yet and maybe it will by the end of the like i'm halfway i think i don't know how many episodes are in it i'm on episode like five okay so i'm about halfway through the the whole second half is brilliant so okay but i've enjoyed it and i do like seeing jason bateman in roles like that but i do every now and again kind of want ron howard to whip a little over the top of the show yeah yeah, the, the the only thing I can say as a negative towards Ozark is it never the tone, never like Breaking Bad had moments or characters that would like Saul, for example, um, would or Skinny Pete. A, yeah, would inject a bit of humor in it. Ozark has none of that at all. Um, it it goes for a very deliberate tone, yeah, right throughout and. I think I think it works, especially in the second half. I think it works very much to its benefit. But you kind of well, while you're getting through, you're like, can we not just get a smile? <laughs> right. It, um, I, although I did get a laugh out of uh, this won't spoil anything, but Jason Bateman saying, "You're welcome," I thought was yeah. funny. Um, and he directed the first couple of episodes, so good on he Jason. Directed Bateman. some of directed some of the end ones as well. So I think he's been. I think maybe that might have been tied into his involvement with the project. Yeah, seems um, seems like kind of a passion project sort of thing for him, maybe. Yeah, very good, though. I, I, like I say, when you get to the end of it, um, 
which will probably be by the next time we record, I would imagine, um, or thereabouts. It'd be interesting to see what your interpretation of the or your feelings were of the final half. Oh fuck that! I'm, I'm going to be watching Twin really Peaks. Uh, well, I'll I'll get to it. I'll get. I can't to moan it. with that because we actually have to watch Twin Peaks. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, all right. Very quickly, we there have been two episodes of Game of Thrones since last we we talked. Uh, yep. uh, I will say I think Cersei has been amazing. Yep. I uh, think um, that character has really went the way I was hoping it was going to go. Um, <laughs> like, really, that's the way... Because like, that's what we've been... Like, if you've been following that character's ascension, really what you want is a kind of retelling of the Mad King. You know what I mean? And that's essentially where she's going... Um, like she's she's even she's even down to like the, the way she is torturing certain people if i go into details um it's a right real Mad, you know this Mad is, King's playbook this is you know sir I mean? gregor he's quiet too moment yeah in it's, this it's, recent it's, episode it's it's, it's fantastic <laughs> um and you know just watch it like the, watching the pieces come together but not in the way i thought they were going to come together has been a delight so um yeah things are like like they are set now a very interesting season and i mean, I, I love game of thrones anyway but um i had a real vibe of where i thought things were going to go at the early part of this season in three episodes and i'm like oh right we are we are really we're going we're going quite interesting with this and we're we're, we're taking things in a slightly different way specifically with cersei's um i, I didn't expect him to be making as much ground as they are at the beginning. I expected them to be taking a bit more of a hammer in. So I'm 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 enjoying that side of things. Um the the, the, the Queen of Thorns, uh her her diatribe at the end of the, the, the last episode. Ugh, Diana Rigg, man. So was good. Fucking amazing. And that's that that's you know, that's what Game of Thrones has better than any T V show at all. You know what I mean? It's just they have these people getting raw. <laughs> yeah, yeah, these these powerhouse actors and actresses just like cutting through the bullshit. Uh, and the, you know, nothing delights me more than seeing a TV show that isn't afraid to use the word cunt. Uh, and when it comes out an old woman's mouth, even better. <laughs> and uh, about Joffrey in particular, completely yeah, accurate. Yes, hundred percent accurate. So yeah, I, I thoroughly thoroughly enjoying where it's going and you know what i like i like the fact that the show is obviously dragons are always in the background but i always like get a smile when i see the wonder of a character seeing a dragon for the first time in that show yeah it sends like a little chill up my back you know what i mean like like every single time we we get that um i i I, you know i I just yeah as as i guess it's a fucking phenomenal tv show and they are really the Midas kind of touch of TV at the moment. Pretty much everything Game of Thrones is doing is gold. Um, and yeah, as, 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 yeah they are doing nothing but great things for me at the moment. And just once again, reaffirming their status is probably the pinnacle of TV. Um, just now anyway. I mean, once again, HBO does this all the time. It's also worth noting, Bo, um, mm-hmm. even though it's not formal news, Um because it was released by Bloody Disgusting, which means it's not formal news. But um, there is movement afoot for True Detective Season 3. I did see uh, some of that, and 
great. I, I think enough time has passed that you can put together a great season. I'm glad that they took a knee for a little bit and thought about what they yeah. did. Um, yeah. Not that, like, we had a great time watching season two. Yes. Um, it, as well, big as crime was, it wasn't season one, though. Right. But I think that's, and I think that's, that is an unfair thing to levy at a show, which is essentially an anthology show. So you're going to be telling different stories every season, but at the same time, when your first season is basically one of the greatest things ever committed to TV, yeah, the comparison is going to be there, especially when you have the same team, pretty much. You know, you have the same writer behind it, same showrunner behind it, but you don't have the same director. You have a series of directors. Um, there's an issue there. What would make me very, very happy at what they need to do and what they won't do is you have your uh, Nick Pizzolatto in the background writing the script, and then you have a name, a director, yeah. and you just give him the whole season. Just let his vision go through. I've, I've said it before. Imagine all the stories that came out that you know uh, William Friedkin was attached to do an episode of the previous season. Uh, David Cronenberg, they approached him to act. You know, like you can get a director like that and give him a whole season of TV. You've got me in. Like you've hooked me in for for you know you should have the worst TV show ever. But I'll watch that because I want to see. It's like Twin Peaks. I want to see these. The big directors, the ones that are really interesting, the ones that are doing that have have made a name that are doing like bits and bobs, but not doing what you you see in the genre anymore. Come back and give them the give them a season of TV and let them just like Netflix can afford to pay for it. You know, HBO can afford it. Amazon can afford to do these things now. That's what they should be doing. Pick a director like a name. Give them you know give them a budget say right this is you know go and do something go and create something for tv and then let me sit back and and reap the benefits uh, as a viewer uh, and that's what i'm, I'm kind of hoping that i know pissalata was involved with the writing of it but what i want to hear is some i want to hear some names you know and in, in the directing chair some vision and maybe less names maybe less episodes directed by multitudes of directors and maybe let's just pick someone who who is invested in it and wants to bring the script to the screen in its entirety and, and give me that and I'll be happy. Yeah, I, I'm I totally agree. Um and let's be honest, the second season was flawed. Like the uh, Channing yeah. Tatum we don't like wasn't very good. <laughs> and his story just didn't go anywhere, more importantly. It didn't, yeah, the problem was the problem was they had a really cool concept that they, they brought out in the first two episodes it was very iconic and you know it had touches of Twin Peaks in it it was the kind of Mulholland-esque sort of influence that lynching tone that was over the background the kind of neo-noir and just just plain noir cinema stuff that they had going on there um, links to things like Chinatown the Maltese Falcon all those things were in there and they were right at the very start and then they disappeared for like about four episodes and then they kind of teased it back in at the end. But by then we went through. And then another thing about that is there was no redemption for any character in that show. Like at all. That first no. season, we finished it on a a, a a positive tone. Like this, you know, things. You know, maybe maybe our characters that have been immersed in the darkness can actually finally see the light at the end. And that's a positive message to end upon. There was no, like the way that that second season finished off was like, anyone you'd invested any time and died or something horrible happened to them and when you get to that you're just like holy f you know it's how you process that afterwards is, is very difficult much like you could say 
a certain fire walk with me. Indeed you could, Duncan. And thank you for leading us back to the uh, the, the raison d'etre of this yep. here podcast, which is, of course, to talk about Twin Peaks. In this case, we are starting, ladies and jelly spoons, with The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer. That's right, reading. Um, <laughs> so... Unless you did the audiobook version, which I which I highly recommend. I I read the first couple of chapters uh, my own self just to prove I still could, and <laughs> then I listened to the rest, uh, which is of course uh, narrated by Cheryl Lee, yes, as Laura Palmer, and um, and it was done recently. Like that recording is, I think, from twenty fifteen. Yep. Something like yep. that. So you can tell that she is an older woman when she records this. She doesn't quite sound like she, she does on the television show, but nobody knows that character better, and she's amazing. She's um, phenomenal. Yeah. And it, like there, there are there are sequen- sequences in it that gave me chills listening to it. So Yeah, yeah there's that. all right. So here's what we're gonna do. Because like I said, yes. we're not gonna take this book scene by scene. Um, I'm going to read the synopsis as provided by the good people at Wikipedia. I do love Wikipedia. Yep. They're great, great site and, uh, and try the onion rings. They're delicious, but (laughs) I don't know what that means. So, uh, but we're going to read this, uh, through and then we're going to talk about the stuff that we feel is important for you, the listener to be aware of in your appreciation of the secret diary. So, you know, we're going to spoil some of this, but it's, it's books. So much of this is about texture and mood and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, and also, you know, what happens to Laura Palmer? Um, or do you, Mm. it's a secret diary after all, uh, secret diary of Laura Palmer written, uh, as we discussed by Jennifer Lynch, uh, the daughter of David Lynch. Uh, she was 22 at the time of the writing and blows my mind. Yeah. Well, it's like when, um, uh, what's his face? T.S. Eliot wrote Proof Rock uh, when he was like 27 or something. So he might have been younger than that even. But anyway, uh, just a, a maturity beyond her years, most certainly. Yeah. Probably all the meditation. Um, so the synopsis... Uh, oh, oh, to, to put it in context. So season one of Twin Peaks drops. Then comes yeah. The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, which is yeah. dirty. And then second season hits. So the book does not give away the the identity of the killer, which, as we know, because we have watched all of season one and season two on this show so far, is, of course, her father, Leland Palmer. Um, and, you know, when we get into Firewalk with me, uh, there's a lot of heavy shit about that. And it kind of begins here at yeah, Secret I, Diary of Laura Palmer. Yeah, like Jennifer Lynch claims that she knew who the killer was at the time of writing it. Um, I don't necessarily think that's true, um, because when you you hear about you hear from casting crew, um, like Ray Wise didn't know that he was a killer until about like an episode before recording, um, his reveal as the killer. So it was all kept very much under wraps, and I think. I like I've said before. I don't know if they necessarily always knew that. In retrospect, there are hints in that first season that maybe they did. Uh, specifically, Ray Wise, when you watch it back through, there are certain tonally interesting scenes, or, or like indications or hints 
through certain scenes it maybe was, but it would not surprise me if the showrunners themselves, like I said before, there had been a, a, a kind of lot of talk that, you know, they might never necessarily touch on who the killer w- was for, for many years on that show because the whole point was to, this was the catalyst to bring people's attention to the show, but the showrunners themselves didn't ever, well, sorry, the writer and main director of the show never really felt that that was the driving force behind the interest in Twin Peaks. The showrunners wanted it revealed when viewer ratings started dropping because an audience wants to know the answer to a question. They don't want that question to remain unanswered. Um, So yeah, so Jennifer Lynch wrote this in between season one and season two, but she says that even though the, the killer was not revealed, she knew who the killer was. Um, and she also claims that there are hints in the book to the killer is, I don't think that's necessarily fully realised. Once again, it kind of feels like if you know what the answer is, you can insert some of that in there. I think if there's a, there could have been about two or three other characters revealed as a killer in the show that you could probably retcon into that diary as well. So it's written really cleverly and that it doesn't give you answers, but in the canon of things, it does fit really comfortably. And whilst only having maybe two or three things in it, which kind of feel like strange, like something happens with the Bobby character in this book that is never mentioned in the TV show, and you kind of feel like it would. So yeah, for sure. But but that also happens in Firewalk with me. Yes. So. Yeah. So which which uh, and also happens in the secret. Yes. Uh, history of Twin Peaks as well. So, yeah. Well, right. What we're saying is when you have a grand thing that covers many decades and stories and all the rest with many, many, many characters, occasionally it might be difficult to remember all the details 100%. So, don't get hung up on it. It's Twin Peaks. That's right. We're just here to have a good time, everybody. So, just back off. Um, <laughs> sorry. Don't get him angry, listeners. I'm, you know what he's like. Uh, just, it. it's been a, uh, just been a long day. Just been, I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, okay, all right, so friends. synopsis. I'm fine. Shaking it off. Uh, the book begins on Laura's 12th birthday in 1984 and steadily matures in writing style and vocabulary. It recounts standard teenage concerns of her first period, her first kiss, and her relationship with her parents, alongside experiences of sexual abuse, promiscuity, cocaine addiction, and her obsession with death. Laura's poetry foreshadows her murder. Her slow realization of Bob's identity is described, although pages are, quote, missing from the end of the diary, which ends with an undated entry in late 1989, leaving the reader unable to reach a firm conclusion. So, you know, that secret diary of Laura Palmer. Um, (laughs) Moving on. Now, uh, so <laughs> I think the first thing to say about this is having read a little bit and then heard the narration, I think that's the way to go um, yeah. because it's, it's really this kind of personal, intimate, even though, you know, I mean, yes, it's a diary, but even for a diary, you know, this is a very intimate look at of a young girl. I think diaries in general are one of those things, even in TV and and movies that when someone reads a diary, you hear the voice of the character in your head. Um, 
and the reason behind that is it is such a personal thing, and I think that's what like that's what to me made the. I read the full book, um, and then found out after the fact that there was an audio book which had come out, um, and you know I was like, "You're right, I, I need to do the audio." As soon as I found out that it was Cheryl Lee that I'd read, I was like, "Need need to listen back to this." Adds a because she's played that character so long. Um, and she's very method in her approach to things. Like, see, we, we'll get into firewall with me. But um, she's very method in how she approaches things. That her reading of things, um, her reading of the, the the book itself, is really quite interesting. Very haunting at times, and it does take you on this kind of roller coaster of emotions, which I think is uh, is great. So I, I I would second what you're saying is definitely the medium that I would jump to, and you can get through that. I think the audio book in total is about. Like six and a half hours, seven hours long, so you can get through it comfortably um, at your work, and you know, fairly easy. Or yeah, don't minutes. put the headphones in on this one. You don't. Yeah, you you need to right as, as we're saying that this isn't just not say for for work uh, content. If you are easily disturbed by conversations of sexual abuse, conversations of rape, um. Or anything that remotely kind of starts to impinge on the hinting of something like incest, then avoid this book. If um, you know, yeah, or, or read it in small doses because this book it descends really, really. What what I found really interesting about it is the fact that it's like it's really well written, surprisingly well written for for someone who, like we were saying, is so young. And that, in your synopsis, you described the, the change in language, which is really evident. Um, and hearing Cheryl Lee, Cheryl Lee read it, it also comes across really well. And she tries to put the inflections in it mm-hmm. um, of just this bouncy, youthful twelve-year-old, and the the life that she imagines for herself moving forward. And there's a great bookend. To an event that happens quite early on to what happens later on, which we will touch on in a, in a little bit here, which I think is incredible. Um, and just like the the descent of the character um, is fascinating. It does not surprise me that David Lynch, when finishing Twin Peaks, wanted to to explore more of the the run up to what happened to Laura Palmer's death. In, in a film format, or tell that story as opposed to continue on the Dale Cooper thing. Um, you know, the fact that he wanted to go back. But I think a lot of it comes out of the ideas that his daughters actually put down on paper is that like, we could really start exploring this, um, which I loved, which I loved. Yeah, so I, I'm waffling here, but I, I thought, well, I as a, as a book goes, I thought as a bit of like fan fiction, <laughs> uh, bridging the gap between the two seasons, I mean, if you read this and then watched season two of Twin Peaks, no wonder you were despondent. <laughs> sure, sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, it, it paints a picture which the TV show can never really live up to. I mean, right. We get That's... flashes of things, but it can never live up to that because it's, it's on TV. It's meant for like a mainstream audience, and this book is not mainstream. Right. It's a real dipsy doodle that they, they pull <laughs> on the American public here, uh, or just the, <laughs> the viewing public. Um, which is to say like, hey, here's this, you know, certainly darkly themed, but often silly show. 
And here's like, you know, everyone wants to know who killed Laura Palmer. Here's the secret diary. And instead of it being, like you said, this kind of fan fiction-y account of like, oh, and then there's a stranger who's been following me diary. I don't know what to do about it. Instead, it's this incredibly uncomfortably graphic and 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 personal portrait of a character up to and including like there's a very uh the, the description that she has in her diary of the first time she masturbates and the first time she orgasms and you could call that salacious but so much of Laura Palmer's fate is tied to her sexuality and so much of her character is about that that warp sexuality that she's driven to um that it doesn't feel out of place and it feels so innocent until you start to get into the later stuff where she becomes you know because of the themes of abuse that that run through the diary she becomes ashamed of her sexuality but at times it's also a means of control for her and it's this very complicated thing. Uh, and, and the secret diary of Laura Palmer is uh, uh, full of stuff like that, of, of this character that's, you know, being pulled between, you know, the these evil forces that are truly trying to possess her. Like, no bullshit, evil wants to possess her um, and, and is trying to debase her um, and and just trying to be a normal person. And and how her relationships start to fall apart, and the new relationships she has, she has, like her relationship with Donna, who's a childhood friend, starts to fragment, and as well as with her cousin Maddie, and you know, instead she kind of falls into the world of Leo and Jacques Renault, and you know, can't can't go a day without doing a, a, a rail somewhere, yeah. Um, but it's because of all this horrible pain, and she admits that in her diary, you know. Um, anyway, so I know I'm just kind of meandering through this, but it, like, I think as, as an experience reading it, it does feel authentic and it feels personal. And then when you watch Firewalk with me, it's like I feel this, I, I feel so connected to this character, and I feel yeah. such empathy for her. And then, and maybe that's a launching point for me to shut up is that. As, as terrible as Laura Palmer is in some of the things she describes, she never is not a sympathetic character. Yeah, I think um, like if, if we're touching on, like, if what touch on some of the, the the issues or the points that come out from from the book, um, it documents like very early on, like from twelve years old. Um, in the diary, one of one of the early entries, she mentions Bob for the first time, and then Bob does not make an appearance for several chapters on, which I think is brilliant because it like Bob's been with her that long. It's just something she like she doesn't understand it. She just doesn't want it to to be there. Um, I love that the fact that the book kind of indicates that Bob is sometimes you know, there in the room with her, but sometimes Bob is her. Like, it's almost a part of the dark part of her psyche. So when she writes yeah. certain things, she writes almost as if she is, she writes Bob's reply 
um, is this like this manifestation of which I mean we've it, once again it kind of ties into the end of season two of Twin Peaks where there's this understanding that Bob is really that the Black Lodge is you know based out of pain and fear um, and whenever she has those aspects in her writing that's when the Bob side of her brain starts to manifest or the bob part of her psyche starts to manifest some of the writing which i think is is excellent it charts her relationship with donna also kind of what, what i like about it is it touches on the the event which obviously this has an impact on season two because there is an event that donna describes to harold smith about skinny dipping with boys, uh, which is mentioned in the diary, which predates that conversation. Um, Harold Smith is touched upon as a character and, um, in, the, in the season as well, which predates the the full kind of the full kind of uh, reveal of that character in season two, which is mentioned once again in the diary. So I don't know if that's Mark Frost giving her pointers or David Lynch giving her pointers, uh, the Jennifer Lynch that is, to to cover certain things within the diary thing so it would link back in or if these are things that she's wrote and they're like actually that's really good let's like appropriate that into our second season um her relationship with our turbulent relationship with bobby um her introduction to flesh world which is all kind of expanded out upon um and what i really liked about it is the there are certain characters that we get very little information on in the TV show, they're bit characters. Leo being one of them. There's a lot of Leo in the diary. Yeah, and he seems like a not a totally different character. It still seems like Leo, but just a lot more vocal. Yeah, he's, the he's got there's there's and also like uh, Jack Renault. Like their two characters have, especially Jack Renault, who's played for the most part as a fairly tender character. And that is not the experience, even though he's a drug dealer, it's not the experience we had of him in the TV show. But it's Laura's interpretation of what that character's like, not an audience interpretation. And how she sees him is completely different to how he is. And it's the same with Leo, which I quite like yeah. about about the, the writing. Is we get her romanticised through through her sexual fantasies and her, her, her drug taking of how she sees Leo and how she sees... Uh, Jacques Renault, and the the TV show sees it from a different point because it's after the events of her death. So these characters are closing ranks. You know, these characters are being very conspicuous with the the fact that they're not divulging information, standoffish. Um, there are events that have happened post Laura Palmer's death, which have forced them to become different sorts of characters, and events like that would change things. Um, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed. I love the fact that we cover uh, Dr. Jacoby. Not for a lot, but we, we start tying into that and the mm -hmm. justification behind the tapes and where that comes from. Um, just a lot of that stuff I thought was really good. Uh, I love Sarah Palmer and the diary. I, I think they really we don't get enough of her in the TV show and the film as well. Um but I love this idea of the fact that they lean more into the fact that maybe Laura's ability to sense things out with normal perception, maybe that came from her mother, which the TV show certainly shows you, mm -hmm. um, is that she's more in tune with that. I love the connection in there. Um, 
the 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 kind of build up of the Leland character is, is I think is really good in the, the the diary as well. There are some things that are inconsistent, like we mentioned. One of which is that Laura heavily gets involved in the drug dealing with with Bobby, who is made out to be far more of a player in that aspect than the TV show would have you believe. He seems a little bumbling when it comes to being a drug dealer. Yeah. And on and the it, on the show and here, yeah, he's deep in the shit. Like the football was his idea. It's and, his idea. Um but there's a drug deal that goes wrong in which he murders someone. Exactly. In the diary. Yeah. Now that's the sort of thing that changes a character. Like that that's the sort of thing that puts a couple of lines and you know, at, at, at the side of the eyes you know, puts a grey streak in your hair, changes your outlook and things, matures you and makes you understand things a bit more. Bobby's not that character um in, in the T V show at all. Um it's it's kind of further hinted upon in Fire Walk with me that maybe he <laughs> maybe he didn't kill someone, maybe injured someone really badly. Um Well they seem awfully dead. Oh, sorry, it's the reversal, isn't it? It's yeah. in, the diary, in the diary, she he hurts someone. In the movie, he kills someone. Yes, he... Yeah. There's a straight-up murder, yeah. Yeah, and the shock... Sorry, that's where I'm getting confused. I'm consuming all this so close. And the... Yeah, and the... And the diary, then, it's... You know, it's insinuated that, you know... Well, it's written that he shoots someone, and, you know, like, almost... Almost fatally wounds this guy, but the guy probably probably got away with it. In the TV show, he straight up kills someone. Um, had the events in the diary preceded the events in Fire Walk With Me, I don't think he would have been as shocked when he killed the person in the movie. I think it would just be, well, this is, you know, this is the escalation of violence that he's already continued on. So, But once again, we're hold, it's written by someone else. Um, it's written as a kind of stopgap between things. Um, in the grand scheme of things in Twin Peaks, I, you know, we're not going to say that everything is done purely within the canon. Um, so, but Bobby feels like a very different character. Um, James is just as nondescript in the diary as he is in the TV show. He's a, he's not much of a character in either. Um, he's played slightly smarter <laughs> in the diary, funnily enough. Uh, um, yeah. But he's, he's a wholly pure, innocent character, which... There's a romanticized version of James, which I just don't get. Well, and once again, like, even Laura Palmer is like, look, James is maybe not the smartest guy. <laughs> yeah. But he's he's got a good heart. And, yeah. you know, thank you. Um, <laughs> Hold that. Uh, <laughs> oh. um, but, yeah, it... It, it's interesting to see all the all those characters from a different perspective, um, from Laura's perspective, who we never knew in the show. Uh, so really, this, you know, chronologically speaking, this is the first insight into that character beyond the revelations from these other characters and videotapes and stuff like that. And, yeah. uh, and hearing what Laura was going through and and particularly those moments in in the diary the the diary entries where she just wants it all to stop and like she's just hounded by bob who is 
forcing her or coaxing her into these kind of morally debasing situations. Yeah. And then she's left to feel, feel the guilt of that, which he also preys on. And it's, and meanwhile, like I said, you know, she's trying to be a, a fairly normal person and trying to hang on to like relationships with Donna and, and even with her mother. And it, it just is doomed. Like, and, and that's the real tragedy of reading this is that, you know, from jump that this character is not going to make it, you know, you're yeah. just, you're seeing the tragic end. And it's very sad. It's very striking and 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 very explicitly sexual, um, in a way that I don't think is ever salacious or anything. It's just like, well, you know, that's sort of this character's mo. <laughs> yeah, know? it's I I I I think what it does really, really, really well. Is and I think you've already you've already said this actually. I think it is worth touching back on this is that the mystery the season season one of Twin Peaks is all about you know it's it's the death of this local girl that was beloved, but when investigations start to to kind of move the topsoil so to speak, and we start to realise that not many people actually knew what was going on or people did know what was going on but just didn't say anything um and this book chronicles a lot of that and a lot of detail and the tragedy is that you is that idea of you're reading it'd be like reading anyone's diary that you knew had passed on as you know where that is especially if someone had died in a tragic circumstance um we know what's happening and what is what is kind of heartbreaking about this is there's a couple of moments of redemption for the character where she kind of dusts herself off, picks herself up. She decides she, she wants to get involved with Meals and Wheels. Um, it's going to be this great idea given back and all the rest. And she starts moving that way and we know where the story ends. Um, and it puts this bittersweet tone um, on it in general. And this, like, what the TV show... Does is obviously you know Bob killed her etc. Through Leland and we know that, but what this does is it, it documents out the full extent of how long this kind of psychological game by Bob has been going on, and how much Bob feeds and grows stronger off it over the time uh, that ultimately she pred- she is predicting her own death um, in it, in advance of it happening, and it does it's, it's a it's a very it's a very sad read. It really, it really is, and and she's she's one of these great tragic characters that you know. Could she have ever been saved? Probably not. I think that's the thing. Like the further on she she was just as self destructive, openly admits how self destructive she is as a character. Um, and yeah, had she, but if she had weren't she being had preyed the, upon, yeah, but I, I, but I think she's been preyed upon because she invites it in but I think it's that the thing like she is at 12 years old she and I am I've never been a 12 year old girl bo, so mm, um, is that so, true <laughs> but she has fairly 
although it's written in a, a very crude kind of 12-year-old manner, she has fairly realised sexual ideas at that age. Mm-hmm. Um, and how much of that is because she's been visited by Bob and how much of that is inviting Bob in? I think that's uh, my under my understanding of all of this, Duncan, and I'm pretty much an expert by now, <laughs> is that Bob initially preyed on Leland. Yes. And then enforced Leland to abuse his daughter. Yes. And then because of, you know, all of those feelings that she was having because of the abuse, that was Bob's end to her. She just would never go all the way with him, so to speak. Yeah. It's, it's weird because, like, if you follow the lore of Twin Peaks, Bob was with Leland for a long time. Since what? he was a kid, yeah. Yeah, so that's a long game to play to, to potentially get another victim. They and don't plus, care, Leland man. Time ain't nothing sim- to the Black Lodge. We'll get to that, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, but but the, the Leland character himself, like, if we're saying that Bob preys off pain and suffering, right, that's kind of what, that's his... That's his particular brand of vodka, bowl, right? And pleasure, um, and pleasure, and, and, and pleasure, right? There's nothing. The, the the fascinating thing would be a diary of Leland Palmer, I think, because oh, there's sure. nothing to see that that character really goes down any of those deviant sort of roads, even through his marriage. You would have thought he would have, like Bob would have prayed into that until he really has a daughter who comes of a certain age that they can start to fuck around. Um, you know, in a horrible, molesty way with, with with that child, I think it it seems to me. And what's it? I don't want to spoil. Well, there's things in the TV show coming up. Uh, there's a. It's. It seems like a very long game to play to get that outcome, unless Bob knew something well in advance. And you know, like if Bob is feeding off those sort of those aspects things. I would have thought it would have jumped away from Leland well before Laura was born, unless I don't know. Like she is a tra- she's a character that seems to have her mother's ability to be in tune with elements of the Black Lodge, like almost see these elements. Like certain characters in Twin Peaks are, they have that that uh, like a radar which picks up things, whether you're the Log Lady or your Hawk. It could... Nice. Even on this episode, that's going to happen. Um, but whether you're those those characters that know that there's, you know, have, have this feeling, this vibe that there's something beyond what we experience, or the major, or something like that, um, which is almost like as what the attraction from Bob is. You know what I mean? If that makes sense, I, I get a feeling that Bob almost picks up on that, and then. Ultimately, as we'll find out when we move on, the desire is is there to have her wholly be her. Yeah, like yeah, the, it's... the transition to her, um, and her, you know, it's not her resist. Well, it is her resistance because she tries to resist. Yeah, she tries the... to fight, but yeah, just can't. Yeah, can't she do can't it. do it. Um, but there's part of her that pursues it. There is one sequence in the diary where she goes out to the woods and is so sexually turned on that she beckons him to come to him as almost a taunt. And when he doesn't arrive, she believes... And the thing, the, the, the cruelty of it is that for two-thirds of this book, 
she believes that Bob is a figment of her imagination. Yeah. And and there are stretches. And, and this is why I think that maybe, like, Bob just bombs in on Leland every now and again. And then mm-hmm. fucks all for a while and does Bob which shit. Which would make sense. Which would make sense in the, the where we're going uh, with the story. But that would make a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and so, but yeah, like, she challenges him. But it's almost better if you're Bob. Because Bob's a real pinhead kind of dude. Yeah, uh, in a lot of ways, and it's better for her to think she's free for a little while, which makes the suffering all the sweeter when he comes back. Yeah, yeah. It's I I, th- I think yeah I think there's not a whole hell of a lot we can see much more about the diary. If I'm honest, I think yeah, I I, I I think it's a really well written piece of 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 uh, fiction. I think it's worth checking out. If you're a fan, you've never went through it. Like I say, with the caveats being that it is a lot darker in tone um, and it covers some some fairly nasty subject matter. Uh, but it's a, it's a great little piece to go and check out just if you're more interested in the Laura character. Even, I mean, I think you could watch Firewalk with me and be like, right, the, these last seven days of Laura Palmer are really interesting. How did she end up here? Then yeah, by all means, go and check. You can check this well out of context of you know the order of you watching uh you know first season second season or you wouldn't have to you know read this first and then start watching the tv show just as much as you wouldn't have to you could easily finish the two seasons and watch fire uh, fire walk with me and then read the book it would work really well it's a standalone work of fiction which captures you know a turbulent horrible descent this kind of futile descent of a of a of a, a girl who is in a place where she doesn't want really want to be in a family who don't really get her with friends that don't understand what she's going through and um, being stalked by something which she can't stop on an inevitable road to to her death is is wholly tragic but it's a fascinating read. To murder Um, so yeah it's one of the best uh bits i read about this uh the the new york times review when this came out Uh said as fan fiction it's a little excessive and i would say (laughs) that is a hundred percent right if you approach this as just a twin peaks fan fiction piece it's gonna be a bit heavy but if yeah. you go into it like, hey, this is a book written by David Lynch's daughter yes. about this tragic character, it's it's really well done. It's very layered and nuanced and 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 shocking at times and really scary at times. And hearing Cheryl Lee narrate, especially some of the Bob stuff and the some of the abuse stuff, is kind of a tough listen, but it's yeah. also very powerful. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Secretary of Laura Palmer, thumbs up. <laughs> book club. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. the, well, bo- the book house boys give this two thumbs up. Oh, shit. That is our book club name. Yep. The book Has house boys. Fuck. Has to be. Has to be. Has to be. I'm fairly sure someone else will have stolen it, but it doesn't matter. They That's... don't have a podcast. Fuck them. That's uh, really good. If you and I ever do a book podcast, that's what we're calling it. 
I like that. I like where this is going, Bo. Uh, I like another project to the many projects we have. We've got the spare time. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. We're just one whole season of Duncan and Bo come correct. will just be books. <laughs> and, and uh, mostly of the comic variety. Uh, no, Cute. I, hey, Duncan, uh, did you read Batman? No. <laughs> it was sweet. Um, all right. Folks, that's silly. Let's talk about something that is decidedly not silly. Um, I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, well, part the the first what twenty thirty minutes is silly. Bananas is the one that is, <laughs> and, and then it takes a turn into being a haunted house movie. So, oh yeah, yeah. Our second chapter in tonight's entertainment, ladies and gentlemen is a little movie I like to call Firewalk With Me, directed by one uh, David uh, Nathaniel Lynch. I don't really know his middle name. Um, I'm hoping it's not Nathaniel. I just hope it's like something like Bob. <laughs> it's William! Unassuming! Um, so, anyway, he... Uh, uh, he directed this, obviously, uh, after the end of, like, this is the real fuck you that, that David Lynch gives us with Firewalk With Me, mm. is that it is not only not a sequel to the events of season two, which is what everyone wanted, Yep, it is instead a prequel all about Laura Palmer, a character you really only ever saw in flashbacks and, and, and pictures and stuff like that. And it's just like, all right, so this movie opens, Duncan, uh, <laughs> with a, a steadily decreasing focus on a television set, on a television screen and static. And the motherfucker ends... With somebody driving a baseball bat. Uh, is a baseball bat or a sledgehammer? I forget. But um, anyway. it's, it's either a sledgehammer or an axe, actually, I think. Um, yeah. I think sledgehammer. I can't believe I don't... Yeah, I think I think it is a sledgehammer. Um, but at any rate, into this TV, uh, as if to say, fuck you, television. I'm David Lynch. I'm going to do my own goddamn thing. And Yeah, well, well Teresa Banks is screaming in the background. Yes, yes. But you don't know that at that moment. Not at that moment. Although, uh, very quickly, we do see uh, a body floating down the river. Yes. A la, like one might even say, hey, is that Laura Palmer? Yes. So Pete Martell's going fishing. And, uh, <laughs> no. And, but uh, the they superimpose the name Teresa Banks. And yes. uh, then an immediate cut to our old pal, uh, deputy uh director gordon cole yeah now it's what is worth saying that like we're obviously we've just dropped that name there people might be like Teresa who we have mentioned this several times um when we first find laura palmer's body and agent cooper appears on the scene he says that it reminds him of a murder that happened a year before um of someone called Teresa banks so we've jumped back a year before the events the twin peaks um, with Laura Palmer's murder and we have come across the body very similar, kind of, this is how we're starting we're starting with a body in, in, wrapped in plastic in the water for Teresa Banks and then we jump to our buddy 
Gordon Cole, who is as ridiculous as always. A smile is on my face. Good David Lynch. I'm now I'm in my happy place. Come at me, fire what with me. Do your worst. I am ready. Yeah, and so what does he do immediately but call up Chris Isaac? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right, it's worth, it's worth right, like, like a bit. Of, right, let's just drop a little bit, of, a little bit of knowledge bombs on you, a little bit of trivia. Oh um, shit! Yeah. So you were saying like David Lynch, like the big fuck you, was really by saying, right, I'm not going to give you what you want, which is you know the continuation of what happens to to, to Dale Cooper, but to give you a prequel. And the reason behind that is. David Lynch was actually only really interested in the prequel. And like, as all great storytellers are, he was, he what he felt like the story of Laura Palmer hadn't fully finished yet. So the way to, to continue that was to experience the last seven days of her life. And then that's how it fleshed out from there. Chris Isaac was not supposed to be in this. It was supposed to be, Dale Cooper, um, Kyle McLaughlin at first did not want to be in this movie, had as a few people didn't, uh, had pretty much said no, he didn't want to be typecast, was not interested, so they wrote that character out and then wrote the entire script, because the majority of this movie was supposed to be following Agent Dale Cooper, um, and then became a, a hefty amount of Chris Isaac, and then Kyle McLaughlin come back and said actually... I'll not do loads, but I will come back and do some. So it was then dubbed 50-50, which kind of explains, but does not explain at all, uh, the the Chris Isaacs character arc of Chet Williams, is it? Chester Desmond. Chester Desmond. Chester Desmond. Um, as, as this almost identical, <laughs> uh, I would say slightly more humorous, quirky um, Dale Cooper, but... Better boxer, we learn, probably. Yeah, probably. Uh, But just looks, you know, very much like, it looks so like Kyle McLaughlin, it's scary. Um, And yeah, that's this is our character that we're following um, at the start here, and to do with the investigation of Teresa Banks. And first, like, if you watch this, you're like, no. No, no, no. Dale Cooper investigated Teresa Banks, we know that, because he said so. The show, the movie's got your back. Don't worry. Don't, you're panicking already. Do nope. not panic. It, it, Do it's, not panic. It's going to work its way around. Uh, it's going to work out, Bo. It's going to work out. Um, our introduction to this character is in the most awesome way, which is busting a prostitute ring where the prostitutes have been driven in a school bus. <laughs> but, all right. Are <laughs> there the prostitutes? Right. They're like prostitute bus drivers? Uh, I, like uh, no, I, I don't I think it's. It's. I think. I think the. I think. <laughs> and the only reason I know this is because I went. I went deep into this bow, uh-huh. uh, watching like the the behind the scenes and, and all the rest interviews, and the the production crew, uh, the two guys that play FBI agents were actually cast at the last minute because David Lynch wanted more FBI in the screen, so I got two of the. What a gun on the kids. <laughs> two of the actual crew and dressed them up as FBI agents and uh, just flung them in the scene. Uh, but basically, the the story is written that the bus driver is not only delivering kids, but they're also smuggling 
a ring of prostitutes as well. And we break into a scene where their kids crying, bashing on the window <laughs> as their bus driver and two prostitutes are being handcuffed by the FBI. It's fucking amazing. And this is where you're just like that. Oh, yes, we're back, ladies and gents. Uh-huh. It's Twin Peaks time. Right, just fucking amazing. Tw- Twin Peaks all over my face. I can't believe how Twin Peaks this is. <laughs> it's fucking this is this is like this is what i love about david lynch's interpretation of this small group that work within the fbi it's just these weird fucking cases and these oh we're gonna get into it but the the sign language of a certain like animated very colorful woman being explained later on is fucking glorious just i love fire what would be bull yeah it, oh if you don't much. think his explanation isn't how this show opens you're out of your mind yeah this is this is how we do things here so yeah this is our introduction to chester desmond um our surrogate uh dale cole uh, substitute for the first 25 minutes of this movie yeah so uh Gordon Cooper or Gordon Cole. Uh, I keep wanting to say Cooper. Uh, Gordon Cole uh, calls Chester Desmond uh, to a remote airport because uh, they have found the body of Teresa Banks. He screams, he screams down the phone. So Chester starts lowering. Oregon, um, and he's he starts lowering the antenna on his car as a way to. Turn down the volume of Gordon Cole, which I love. Technology, and we're going to get into this more with the new season. Technology in Twin Peaks, just in general, is used in really interesting ways. It's like David Lynch doesn't really know or doesn't really care how technology actually works. And as a, as a result, it works weirdly in the context of this show. Um, but yeah, he's like that. I need you. going to meet you at the airfield. Um, and are you gone? Um, which is fucking amazing. Uh, it's it's one yeah. of my favorite things in them. Like this movie is just so rich with great stuff. And, and so rich with great stuff, and so rich with with fucking like cameos of actors. Like I remember, people were like that. Oh, there seems an excessive amount of cameos in the new season of Twin Peaks. Things like that. You motherfuckers watch Twin Peaks first time round or Fire Walk with me because there are actors in there and actresses where you're like you, what? right. Hey, thanks for mentioning me. <laughs> I, d- I didn't really mention you, but... No, you're, it's cool. <laughs> so... <laughs> but you're right, like, it's it, like from David Warner showing up, uh, the fact that uh, Joan Chen was in it at all, and Russ Tamblin, like, it was just filled yeah. with all these kind of character actors from Jump, and, yeah. and that's how Fire Walk With Me is, too, because, you know, you have chris isaac obviously hey welcome to twin peaks Kiefer sutherland yeah but that is, uh, and people are surprised by this it's fucking david lynch that's directing it who who as an actor does not want to work with david lynch even if it means you're going to be a small bit part character that's only going to be in it for like 10 minutes and you have to dress up and act a bit quirky you're going to be Kiefer sutherland dressed in a bow tie you know what i mean or being <laughs> a blues bar orgy you never know. Yeah. You never know, Duncan. You are going to fucking do that movie. Yeah. Of course you're going to do it. You'd be daft not to. Like, he's he's like, he's what most actors aspire to work with as a director. 
He's, he's like the purest form of movie direction. Of course they're going to fucking want that. It just blows my mind. But yeah, welcome to the show, Keith Sutherland. Yeah. Uh, bow tie and all. Right. He is a uh, uh, an examiner, like a forensic examiner. Um, yeah, cracked, it, cracked another case the, the, um, elsewhere. Yeah, cracked the Whitman case. Um, yeah, and so they're being paired up to investigate Teresa Banks. Before they go, Gordon Cole has a message. For Agent Chester Desmond and uh, his companion, Sam Stanley, uh, is Kiefer Sutherland's name in the film. Uh, and Gordon says, her name is Lil. <laughs> and out comes Lil, who is uh, standing beside a yellow prop plane. She has a red wig on. Uh, you, you heard it in the intro. Uh, she makes a series of bizarre gestures, at which point David Lynch then rolls his hand over his face and drops his fingers in front of his eyes and then just yep. goes, good luck, Chet. Yep. And then off we go. Yep. Oh, also, David Lynch saying modus operandi. That's fucking amazing. May I? Yes. He's got his own MO. Modus operandi. <laughs> so anyway, it's so fun <laughs> to do that. Everyone do it right now in your homes, your workplaces. Yeah, on that walk. Yeah, just or on the bus. Just be David Lynch for a sec. It feels yeah. good. Release uh, your inner Lynch. Um, but yeah, so then uh, Chester Desmond explains to Sam Stanley what all that was about. Like I said, you heard it in the intro. Not not gonna exp- re-explain it, but I think Duncan, uh-huh. this is Lynch saying to the audience. In a not so subtle way, like, hey, get ready for some symbolism and things are not necessarily always what they seem in the coming story. <laughs> like owls, Bo? Like owls? Very similar to owls. Which brings us to our first question, Duncan. Oh, do uh, we have questions? We Holy do shit. have questions, and you just This said episode the is word. long. It's only going to have hey. questions. That's how, that's, how, that's how fucking carefree we are. We're like that. We'll answer motherfucking questions during an episode which discuss two full novels, uh, a movie, and an hour and a half of deleted and additional scenes. Fucking bring your questions on, motherfucker. Quit your bitching. Uh, Darren <laughs> asks us uh, Did we ever get around to what the owls seem like, or just that they're not what they seem like? Um, this will be answered, I think, a little bit more when we talk about secret history. Yes. But I but think... It's been answered already, really. Bob can occupy owls, which we've already seen. You can use them as vehicles. Yes. Um, and, yeah, so... The Harbingers of Evil, which is uh, why they, they they are not always what they seem. Um, yeah, so yeah, so that's been kind of explained, but like Bo said, when we get to that secret history, we're going to be talking about some giant owls. Yeah, there's some weird shit going to gonna be happening pretty soon. So, um, yeah, uh, so Chet uh, explains everything to, almost everything, doesn't talk about the, uh, was it the Blue Rose? Uh, it's a Blue Rose case, and Chet uh, says, I can't tell you about that. Actually, we as, know what that means. We know what that means. <laughs> uh, as Chris Isaac, though, uh, it's more like, what a wicked blue rose. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I, I promise. <laughs> uh, Yo, you just you committed to it. You just did an Isaacs on this show. No, but he he is so Midwestern, it hurts. Well, they play one of his songs, and like, 
<laughs> like when he when he answers the phone to Gordon Cole, his car is playing one of his songs, which I think is fucking weird. Um, so yeah, to do that, David Lynch apparently a big fan, a big fan. Um, so yeah, so that he he breaks down all this in the car as they're heading out to the sheriff's office to take a look at the body of Teresa Banks, but through the diatribe that we heard at the very start of this episode, the clip. Um, you will hear that they already are going into a scene where they are fully aware of what they're going to kind of go up against, which is a very uncooperative uh, sheriff um, and a lack of information and respect, uh, which they meet pretty much as soon as they arrive and walk through the door. And this almost mirroring of the the, the Twin Peaks sheriff office. It's, it's This like, whole town is bizarro Twin Peaks. Yeah, it's like it's like the anti version. It's like almost like the the through the looking glass version of Twin Peaks, and um, even down to things like the diner. So we'll, we'll we'll get to that in a bit. But yeah, we we meet uh, their version of Deputy Andy, who's obnoxious. Uh, their version of Lucy, whose laugh makes me cringe uh, and want to stab needles into my eardrums. Uh, and their sheriff, who is the most unlikable sheriff we've met thus far. Yeah, who has a picture of himself bending an iron rod. Yes. Because that's the kind of sheriff he is. And he's, as explained, not very helpful, doesn't really want the FBI around, and Chris Isaac, uh, obviously, just ain't having it. Yeah, because they they, they call him one of, what what was it, they call him one of Edgar's boys. Yeah, Uh, one of Jay Edgar's boys. Yeah, it's how, like, there's this attitude towards him straight away. And um, Chet's the man. Uh, he he lays the smack down. Basically, tells him exactly after after brutally grabbing uh, his deputy by the nose and sitting him down like a petulant child and walking in and telling the the sheriff exactly what he needs. Uh, he and um, Kiefer Sutherland, Sam, uh, head out to investigate the body. Yeah, not before uh, Agent Chet. Um, gets tossed the lightest box of evidence in the history of boxes of evidence. One of my, yeah. one of my, one of those moments in a movie where you're like, "Ah, you guys couldn't have done another take." Okay, <laughs> this is Twin Peaks, right? We're playing a little no, loosey goosey. No <laughs> yeah, yeah is, David Lynch doesn't care about the box. Moving David on. Yeah, I, I just. <laughs> Or if it's Chris Isaac, he's like, I just feel bad about that scene. <laughs> <laughs> it was fine. Um, I, I, I'm going to be honest. Um, I did not expect to like uh, Chris Isaac's impression on this show. I kind of fallen in love with it now. <laughs> I kind of hope it lasts more than 20 minutes. It's not going to, though. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of I'm liking this. Once again, this is what you get when you listen to this show. Multifaceted, multidimensional, not always insightful, but sometimes hilarious. Uh, With great impressions, always spot on, hundred percent. Man, man of a dozen voices. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Yes, Um, and and only eleven of them are the same. Yeah, they're mostly the same. Um, But (laughs) uh, in fact, I'm doing one right now. Can you tell who it is? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Spoiler: Carl Sagan. Um, so they get, they go to the morgue, which is basically just the shed out back. Yeah. And they give, uh, Teresa Banks, uh, a thorough once over to see what the, what is. 
and uh, Sam uh, Sam Stanley um, ends up. Uh, no, no, no. Is it uh, Chet who sees the thing under the nail, or is it Sam who finds it? I it's Sam. I want to see. I want to see it, Sam. That yeah. notices something. But, oh, but yeah. it's so gross, Duncan. It's well, like this peeling is, this, back the, the nail. Oh. Yeah, this is your first indication that you're you're watching some you're watching a movie. Uh, you know what I mean, and not a and not a Twin Peaks TV show. Uh, and that in the in the TV show, we obviously got that scene where uh, Dale Cooper puts the tweezers under um, under uh, Laura Palmer's nail and comes out with the letter. In this movie, they remove the nail, and it is it's yeah it's cringy it's, it's agonizing and yeah it's, it's uncomfortable to look at and super sleuth chet desmond oh i like what you did there uh-huh is like hey where's her ring <laughs> and sam stanley is like what <laughs> he's like her ring and he's like oh her ring yeah uh i don't know it's gone but she's got the obvious tan line where somebody took a ring a yeah. ring, Duncan, a jade-colored ring that might yeah, be... Yeah, which, ladies and gents, strap yourself in because the term jade ring is going to be used all the way to the end of this episode now, so be forewarned. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, so they peel off her uh, her nail, grab uh, the, the letter that is hiding beneath, and and then make their way over to Hap's. Uh, which is kind of, again, this is all bizarro Twin Peaks, so it's sort of the double R, only real shitty and everyone's mean. Yeah, the, the, this is the, like, even down to the the neon signs, the way that the, the scene is shot with the neon light, uh, lights bouncing off puddles in the car park. Um, this is This is kind of setting up this kind of familiar scenario that we've already kind of went through. Um yeah, the food does not look appetizing. Uh, the people are nowhere near as nice. Uh as, evil Norma uh, is attending them, who is just a crotchety old lady with a cigarette. Yep. And uh, just like, one, nothing's well, good here. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> you get nothing. Um uh, yeah, they ask what the specials are. She goes, Do you want to know what the specials are? They're like, Yeah, she's like, We don't got no specials. And yeah, and then laughs uncomfortably. <laughs> Uh, um, I do like yeah, that so, when Chris Isaac is like, "Do you do cocaine, Irene?" <laughs> and she's like, "No, I do not. I do not take drugs." And uh, Kiefer Sutherland is like, "Yeah, but nicotine's a drug and caffeine's a drug." And she's just like, "Shut up!" It's uh, it's pretty good. Yeah, I hope that I hope they light their food with a side of saliva, because. Um, yeah, you don't piss off people serving you food. Uh, although I think even if you complimented her, you were getting it anyway. Um, right. So yeah. So so uh, the the question she uh, Teresa Banks had briefly worked in the diner at some point, I believe. Unless I picked that up wrong. Yeah, but it was like very briefly. Like yeah. uh, you know, she was a, a lady ro- rolling through town. Um, yeah, a uh, bit of a drifter, um, uh, and then uh, Agent Chet Desmond does a little a little prank, Duncan, where uh, Sam Stanley uh, has his finger firmly tucked in his cup of coffee, and he's like, "Hey Sam, what's the time?" <laughs> and 
Kiefer Sutherland just turns his coffee up as he checks his watch. I'm a little bit of a prankster. Uh, so that's what you get with Chet. Um, it's the name of his album. That's what you get with Chet. Um, oh, <laughs> So, uh, Sam Stanley is like, hey, man, I just should probably take that body back to, like, a real place to examine it. And uh, Chet's like, that sounds real good. And uh, uh, and then, you know, before they can properly fuck off, though, we have to get another cameo in here at the old Fat Trout trailer park. Uh, Also, throw an asterisk uh, beside that name. Because uh, that's yeah. going to come up again. Um, uh, there's a a door, Duncan, with a sign that says, do not knock before 9 a.m. ever. It is handwritten so you know it is serious. Yeah. And Don't fuck. With, uh, um, well, once again, introduction to... And, you know, once again, I've seen this movie several times. But there, there will always be a warm place in my heart, a smile on my face for some Harry Dean Stanton. Just shows up out of nowhere again. Welcome to Twin Peaks, Harry Dean Stanton. Thanks for coming. Yep. Will uh, not be the last time we see you. I'm looking at you, the return. Mm, that's so good. Um, <laughs> he's uh, he's a great actor. A yeah. Lynch mainstay has been in several Lynch productions. Um, and, and just a safe pair of hands. And and as we know from Secret History, which we'll discuss later, is significant to the yep. town of Twin Peaks, strangely. Uh, yeah. So, any hoozles. Um, Harry Dean Stanton is the owner of the trailer park whereupon uh, Teresa Banks was staying. And um, so Super Sleuth, uh, Chet Desmond, and Sam Stanley... Um, start checking out the trailer. They they find a picture which is of uh Teresa wearing the jade ring very prominently. Jade ring. Uh huh. Um, as if that is somehow significant. Jade and, ring. And uh, so Harry Dean Stanton uh shows back up with uh some cups of Good Morning America for him, which is <laughs> I think what I'm going to start calling coffee from now on. Um. <laughs> It's been uh, it's been percolating for like forty eight hours or something, uh, which which draws an interesting look on their face because even in this alternate Twin Peaks, like when Twin Peaks the coffee, every cup of coffee is a revelation, and this place the coffee not so nice. Yeah, yeah, and uh, then we of course need another cameo. Mm-hmm. So uh, Mama from Throw Mama from the Train pops in. Uh, just to, and it's like she just peeks in the movie and it's just like, hey, is there, is there a David Lynch movie happening in here? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. And she's like, okay. And then just leaves. Uh, but it calls Harry Dean Stanton away. And uh, so Chet Desmond is checking out um, a vacant lot. Uh, yeah. Uh, what, why don't you explain if you can, Duncan? Uh, the goings on in uh, the vacant lot. 
So yeah, so essentially he, he asks who, who, well he goes over and checks out and um, Harry Dean Stanton makes his way over and he asks him who, you know, what was here before and he's like obviously a trailer because it's the trailer park. The thought you were an FBI. Chet. Well, you know, sorry, name's Chet. Um, I don't matter. know everything. <laughs> but basically he says to them that um, the previous trailer had been occupied by actually someone who's like the surname escapes me at the moment, but the surname of the two people staying there, which we'll touch on in a second, uh, had been the same surname of the person staying before that as well, which seemed a bit odd, but it was an old woman and her grandson. Now, ladies and gents, you have all watched Twin Peaks, hopefully by this point here. You will all cast your, cast your mind back. Where have we... A grandmother and a grandson. Where have we seen that But Bo? Where have we seen that before? Um, I think it involved uh, some cream corn. Or... Yeah, which we just thought was cream corn, but no. turns out it has more importance. It is uh, gambanzio. Um, Garbonazier. Anyway, it's tough. Um, Klaatu. That's the name of it. But yeah, so, you know, after at one point kind of uh, going to the cops uh, locally to be like, hey, where the fuck is this Jade Ring? Um, And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so Sam Stanley fucks off, but not before saying, like, you're going back to the trailer park to look for the Blue Rose, aren't you? And very cryptically. And, uh, uh, Chet Desmond is like, that's exactly what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm going to miss that, this character. Because <laughs> that's what Chet do. That's um, what Chet do. <laughs> and goes in and there's, uh, whereupon there, were, there was nothing. Uh, now there is uh, a trailer with like a gold propane t- tank. Gold propane. Um, <laughs> tank? <laughs> the fuck just popping in they said david lynch was making a movie um (laughs) just gonna say i feel a little bit upset that we will reveal what happened to hank on this show (laughs) i love that i i think hank's ending is is terrific um (laughs) so uh but anyway so uh super suit chet desmond creeping around the trailer park uh sees a mound a dirt mound and and regular viewers of Twin Peaks may recognize dirt mounds as things where uh, other things are found. Um, yes. And in this case, it is uh, the Jade Ring. Yes. I've been looking for that. <laughs> and then he reaches out to take the ring and uh, the, the screen freezes, Duncan. It's yep. like, hey, we're done. And then we cut to the FBI offices. Yes. Where uh, Agent Cooper is engaged in a bit of oddity. Just a tad. So so here's the deal. He's in the FBI offices in the hallway and and looking at the uh, security camera. Yep. And so he looks into the security camera and then he goes into the booth where the security guy is and he looks at the screen where, uh, you know, for the camera that was pointed where he just was. 
And he's not there because he's in the room. Right, because why? that's not how reality works. And yeah. it, it does this two or three times. And like, if this is your first time watching it, you're like, what is Dale Cooper, uh, what is Dale Cooper not understanding about this? Well, but then comes, uh, welcome to the show, David Bowie. Um, That's right. David Bowie rolling out of the uh, elevator, and he passes by. Let's dance. Put on your red shoes and dance. I love it. Keep going. Yep. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Let's. I don't know. I was going to go with a made-up line, and then I fucked it up. Um, And if you should run, I'll run to you. See, yeah, I can't, I can't do that. You're a way better Bowie. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty good at Bowie, though. Yeah, it's, have you ever heard me do the labyrinth? Do the labyrinth, Jesus! If you never heard me do it, I don't think I have. This is going to blow your tits off. <clears throat> so I saw my baby crying hard as babe could cry. What could I do? My baby's love was gone. I left my baby blue. Nobody knew. Oh, that's good. I'm pretty good at Bowie. Yeah. Oh, oh man. Although Bowie's not very good at Bowie in this. His American accent is fucking dreadful. It's oh, the, it is the most corn pone accent. <laughs> what did they do to him? I love it. David Lynch is just like that. I don't care. Just be American. <laughs> And if David Bowie shows up with that accent and he does it, you let him do it because it's fucking David Bowie. Nah, it sounds authentic. <laughs> Are you from Kentucky? Kentucky. <laughs> so. <laughs> um. Kentucky. <laughs> oh, no. It's not a real state, Duncan. Spoilers. <laughs> Oh, yeah, so, like, um, oh, dear. All right, but, all right, but getting back to the camera, the whole deal was that, so, when, uh, what, what's his name, uh, Peter Jeffries, Philip Jeffries, when Philip Jeffries walks by, when David Bowie's like, let's dance right by Agent <laughs> Cooper, um, Cooper goes into the booth and still sees himself in the hallway. Yeah. Which... So the- the fabric of time has changed, Bo. Well, you and I know that, Duncan. Yeah. Uh, and and <laughs> listeners, this is where we get into the good shit. Uh-huh. Mm, let's crack this nut wide open. So, yeah. <laughs> so time starts to slip because Philip Jeffries is kind of Vonnegut-like stuck out of time. Yes. And bursts into the office and where uh, Agent Cooper, Agent Cooper has followed uh, Philip Jeffries into Gordon Cole's office, where we also have one um, uh, Agent Rosenfeld, Albert Rosenfeld is hanging out as well. And yes. he bursts in and uh, he's like, do you know who that man is over there? <laughs> And that's not far <laughs> off, people. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, you do a you do a better David Bowie Twin Peaks than I do. <laughs> I mean, that's I'm Twin not... Peaks Bowie's better from Bo. <laughs> I, I I don't I don't know. If that's a badge of honor. Um, 
but so just shit starts to get weird. Yeah, because he, he starts talking. You're not allowed to talk about a certain woman whose name escapes me. Um, and obviously, uh, Agent um, Cooper is introduced very briefly to, and we find out that this David Bowie was a not only was an FBI agent. Once again, we're going to touch on this a lot more when we go into the secret history, but he he is known. He's famous in the academy. Um, but has been missing for a couple of years. Right. Disappeared. Not there. Um, and whilst he is trying to recoup himself uh, in the room, you know, our, our uh, Miguel Ferrer's character, Rosenfield, sent away, uh, Coop sent away, and our, our, our buddy, uh, <laughs> David Lynch, takes his eyes off him for just a couple of seconds, which is enough for that character to banish very much like kevin spacey as kaiser sozi um and useful suspects he's just like and vanish um he disappears no explanation bo yeah um that's true and i mean we'll pick this up again on missing pieces but, yeah, but even then he disappears with no explanation but even even in missing pieces you know, they're like, yeah, oh, it's, he shows up here, but there's no explanation for it. <laughs> no, it's never not weird. Don't get me wrong. It's a little <laughs> less weird with the missing pieces scene in there. Because yeah. at least there's this sense like, oh, he was at this hotel where he'd been convalescing. And then kind of gets hurled in, through time and space into this situation, maybe. and But, all right, so then we get into some Black Lot shit. Yeah, we we, un, we unpack that very very quickly. We unpack that David Bowie, through his cryptic statement to Cole, mentions very briefly that he may have come in contact with with uh, people um, above a convenience store, and we're like that. That means fucking nothing to no one. Um, but then we get some Black Lodge shit, just exactly like you say. And the Black Lodge shit we get is. Our first glimpse that this is going to be a horror movie. (laughs) Yeah, all right. Full on. With the nail peeling and the time travel. Things take a turn. um, And that turn is enjoyed by me. Yeah, well, all right. So we're in the the room above the convenience store. Yes. And it's the man from another place, our our favorite little fella. Yes. Um, offering everyone Garman Bozia. Um, yes. And, Which is cream corn to us. Yep. Um, and he's sitting at a, he's sitting down at a Formica table. Yep. Uh, which he's obsessed with the color. I think it's a green or a blue one, which he keeps stroking. Uh, and sitting opposite him is everyone's favorite Bob. Right. Who's just, <laughs> I mean, he's like being his typical Tasmanian devil self where he's just like, let's fuck shit up. <laughs> and <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> uh, and then behind them would be a certain grandmother and David Lynch lookalike uh, in miniature younger form, the, the grandson. Right. Mrs. Chalfon and her grandson. Chalfon. Uh, um, and then. Sitting beside her, beside the telly, is a lumberjack. Yeah, Jurgen Proch now. Welcome to Twin Peaks. Yes, for this one 
thing. Yeah, don't know why you're here. Happy to see you, though. Yes, it's great to see him. Uh, the people might be saying, Lumberjack seems a bit weird. All I'm going to say is, Twin Peaks of Return. <laughs> I don't know if I say anything else about that, but that becomes important. So, All right, good. Lock onto that. Not not Jürgen Prock now, but just the Lumberjack thing, because uh, it looks out of place and it may be wholly confusing. But there's more than one Lumberjack there. Um, then, if that wasn't bad, there is a coloured gentleman um, sitting down kind of dressed like a janitor and there is what can only be described as the dude from Lost Highway if he was wearing a white mask uh, with a pointy nose like maybe something from a Clockwork Orange uh-huh. uh, made it a paper mache jumping and dancing backwards on a podium Yep, in a bright red suit and then at one point baby David Lynch has the mask on Yep. And then removes it to show you, like, hey, look, it's, hey, I'm baby David Lynch. And yep. then puts the mask back on. And it's like that, what does Bo want to see when I remove the <laughs> no, mask? I know, it is. Mm. <laughs> mm, Duncan. Remove the mask, and there's a monkey. <laughs> yeah, and there's just a monkey face there, and I was like. And Bo's like, yay! Was, is this <laughs> the best movie ever made? It's no. It might be. Um, so, yeah, so th- they realize that Philip Jeffries has disappeared. And, oh, and then you see the red curtains as uh, the man um, from another place and Bob slip into the Black Lodge. Yeah, they have this conversation which revolves around the discussion of the ring, that with this ring I be wed. Right. Um, which is all said backwards. Um, oh, yeah, and we is. see that... Yeah. <laughs> we also missed out like a great line um, in this earlier on when uh, Chet Desmond finds uh, Teresa Banks vacant. No, no, it's with Dale Cooper. Have we passed that minute? No, 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 no. Uh, we, no, 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 yeah. We just it's get the greatest the fucking thing ever. Makes me smile from ear to ear when this happens. But uh, yeah, so they, they disappear into the, the Black Lodge. So there's some insinuation that there is out with the portal um, and the, the, the kind of Sycamore Grove area of, can't remember what it's called again, uh, because we're G. Oh, uh, Glastonbury Cove. Yeah, Gla- Gla- Glastonbury Grove at Twin Peaks. At Ghostwood. Which is a portal. Yes, at Ghostwood. There's a connection there between the Black Lodge and reality. And there may be one in this convenience store as well. Maybe. Yeah, I, I mean, because when, again, we get into secret history, they talk about, like, there are seven of these. Yeah. Potentially. So this is, so. yeah, so, so this is, like, this is one of them as well. So they, they head back in. So, once again, giving credence to your theory that Bob isn't always in Leland and can assume control of Leland as when he wants. Right. He might have, like, a, an out-of-town family, a second family, a secret Bob family <laughs> that he bumps in on. He's just like, hey, let's really get weird here. Yeah, and, a, secret, a, secret, a secret, Bob fam- uh, secret Bob family that he can, you know, uh, you know, mess up, rape the daughter, you know. And then goes back to his real Bob family, and he's like, oh, it's been a busy day at work. Been so hard. Oh, here we go. Let me play with Rex the dog, because I just think Bob has a dog called Rex. 
Oh, sure. Cocker Spaniel for some reason. I don't know why I thought. Now for some me time. (laughs) I'm gonna. I'm just gonna watch some Buffy. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yes, they disappear into into there, and then we jump from there. Well, Gordon Cole says, "Hey, there's news from Deer Creek. It's no Deer Meadow. I'm sorry, Deer Meadow." And uh, Super Sleuth Chet Desmond uh, has gone missing. Super Sleuth Agent Dale Cooper, you're in. And so he uh, heads to Deer Meadow, Washington, to pick up the trail of both Chet Desmond and Teresa Banks. Where And we kind of pick him up at uh, the Fat Trout trailer park with Harry Dean Stan. Yeah. So he arrives there, and one of the first things he observes is um, Chet Desmond's rental car, which has in red paint or lipstick written on the front windscreen two words, Bo. Two words that I imagine, once again, with the reveal of the monkey, made you very happy. Let's rock. Yeah, and we're like, okay. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. that is the closest I think you get to fan service. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think it's this indication that, you know, Black Lodge involvement um, for Chet Desmond. You know, pretty much. Yeah. Um, so, and then maybe that'll link. Huh? So when you think about it in terms of the context of the show, it's the first thing the man from the other place says to... Cooper the first time he meets him, and maybe there's a like a nod to him, you know, maybe the Cooper uh, Cooper at that point that their the involvement has extended before into the Teresa Banks case. Maybe, maybe yeah. that's why they're doing it. There. Which once again, fine if they want to do that, I will not complain. Um, you're not retconning anything really. Uh, so yeah, so he he um, starts doing a little bit of investigation and. But not into Teresa Banks' trailer. He heads for the the place where the gold propane uh, tank trailer was. <laughs> and and like Harry Dean Stan is like, where are you going? And uh, Agent Cooper is like, I'm a super sleuth. Back off, man. I got this. Um, and and sees that there are kind of fresh tracks in the dirt and whatnot. And is like, hey, we're, uh, who was renting this place? And he says, well, it was uh, an old woman and her grandson. Bum bum bum, and we're, we and, know who they are. Yeah, and he's we finally get the the name Chiffon. Chiffon, uh, and he says, you know, they were in fact they weirdly enough they were the last per- people to rent it. Um, mm-hmm. so again, uh, tying uh, something mystical like now we got upstairs convenience stores that are are portals. We got trailers that are apparently haunted. Uh, yes. And uh, and then he has a, a quick chit chat with Diane. Yeah, and we're like, yeah, Diane, because like once again, did we ever think we would get to hear that again, Bo? Did we ever think right. we'd get to hear that again? And uh, and then he's kind of he's not done with the movie, but he's done with being in Twin Peaks proper. Yeah, because the next scene is the entrance of Twin Peaks proper. Yeah, and it like we see uh, Laura Palmer doing a Halloween walk down the sidewalk. 
Uh, it really where, is, actually. It's, it's, it's totally scarily uh, John Carpenter's Halloween. Um, it's worth saying that um, as it stands just now, everything that we've just discussed is technically the uh, almost like an extended intro to the movie Firewalk With Me. Because it, it goes on for about, what, 30 minutes-ish? Maybe slightly longer than yeah, that? Yeah, about that. Um, yeah, and we don't revisit that at all now. We we will revisit the character of Teresa Banks through a particular flashback, um, but yeah, that's us done with with that side of the story. We're now in the seven days leading up to the death of Laura Palmer, and that, ladies and gents, is where we're going to remain for the remainder of this movie. Yep, buckle in, everyone. Uh, so, um, Laura and not Donna. Oh my god. You don't look like Donna. <laughs> hey. Hey. Well, I she looks yeah, just look... like Laura. But you don't look like Donna. Oh. Oh my head. Like, Someone get me a I, copy of Charlotte's Web. Is is worth <laughs> once once again like in a bit of trivia in the background. The actress that played Donna from the TV show had said before the script even got sent to her, no. And they sent her the script anyway, and when she got it, she said, oh, hell no. <laughs> right, not just no, but hell no. I don't want to be involved with this. I don't want to be involved with the project. It, it doesn't interest me. And I'm going to say, Twin Peaks, you fucked up. You marginalized and, and made a mockery of that character in the second season, so much so that your lead actress did not want, your lead actress of that role did not want to be involved with it at all. So, yeah, I mean, and they need to have Donna in this story because she's pivotal. She's pivotal um, to to the, the build up to this. So the recaster, and I'm going to say, not the worst bit of recasting, but she is not Donna. She's uh, like, right, which is not Donna, especially disappointing because there's way more for her to do as a character. In yeah, in and everyone this else, film. yeah, everyone else from her school all the other characters are played by the same people so yeah. it's, it's the it's a sore thumb one kind of thing yeah it really really is and all credit to this the, this actress that took the role you step Laura into Kelly. the shoes of a cat yeah you step in the shoes of an actress uh, as an actress in a role which is was a, was very well known at that point um it's a thankless job I think she does quite well. I quite like her, her performance as Donna, um, but her face is not Donna. So we we will now we unfortunately I have become James, is what I'm saying, and she does not look like Donna, and that is unfortunately what what remains kind of looming over that character for me, pretty much all the way through. And I I kind of feel a wee bit upset by that because I I like I say I do quite like the performance here, but. Is that, you know, the continuity there is just wrong for me. So it's a shame. It's a a shame. But there are quite a few characters who do not make the cut of this movie that we have to see in the missing pieces so we can actually see other characters from Twin Peaks because they got quite a lot of the characters out of this part here, mainly because I think Lynch's original run of the movie was close to four hours long, which is fucking nuts. Um, so the, yeah, it really is. It's just fucking insane. It's, it's so too much, I, David. 
too much. Yeah, it's fine. It's like he's like just wait to keep going. I, I want the, people I think, to make a day of it. But you know what? You know what's bitching about David Lynch, like just just in general, is they were like that. Four hours is too long. Jump jump forward twenty five years, and they basically give him eighteen hours. You know what I mean? Because that's yeah. what he said. The new season of Twin Peaks is an eighteen hour movie. That's how he shot it. He didn't shoot it as episodes. He shot it as an eighteen hour movie. So. <laughs> He's like, that. four hours, and they're like, no, you need to cut this down to, like, at the most, at the most two. He's like, four hours, and they're like, no, you need to cut down to at least, at the most two, David. And he's like, that, give it time, David, give it. Now we play the waiting game. <laughs> it's like, just sat out. Right. From, and Showtime are like that, David, we really want you to do a new season of Twin Peaks if you want. He's like, that, 18 hours, and like, okay. It's like yes, <laughs> like that. so yeah. There's there's a lot of characters that don't make appearances. Donna has to be here because Donna, best friend of Laura, and Laura is doing the Halloween scene. She's stopping off. She's meeting up with her girly, um, and they are taking a walk down the lane, um, past a couple of familiar characters. Bo, yeah, Mike, uh, who is currently dating Donna. Uh, yeah, at, at this, this point. is before. Yeah, before he falls head over heels for the the the, the red headed bombshell, the the uh, the. Did I hear the, someone call me? <laughs> the the the, uh, the, the cupid infused cycloptic powerhouse, uh, which is known as Nadine. Sexy. Uh. <laughs> uh. And everyone's testicles have <laughs> have went up inside everyone hearing that voice. But yeah, so she, at the moment they're together, and Laura's with Hubo. Hey, <laughs> Bobby Briggs over here. Oh, yeah. Guess what? Real Donna didn't make it. Bobby Briggs in the house. Um. <laughs> so. <laughs> And we're going to go on a turn with this character. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Bobby, um, whoo, and this movie. Uh, so, yeah, so we meet, we meet them, and obviously uh, we, we know how the story ends with these characters, but we're getting, to, we're getting an opportunity to see how it builds up, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, and, and so we're kind of following them. They're like, they kind of, uh, Donna and, and Laura are just kind of like, tee bye boys, and, you know, kind of scoot past Mike and Bobby, um, and then head into the the high school, and are basically just set upon by James. Oh, um, no. Eh. Let us even get in and put our bags down, James, maybe get a seat at our desk, take a load off, just before get- you come in with your, you don't look like Donna. Right, I, and he's just like, you don't look like Don- Laura. What's going on with Donna? <laughs> and but, but it, James is still very much into the like, I love you so much, Laura. Um, and she's like, all right, James, I'll see you later, I guess. And while Donna, you know, heads for class, Laura ducks into the bathroom for a little, a little toot, Duncan. Yeah, a little yeah, nose candy, <laughs> a little. Booger sugar. Oh, no. A little clean burning propane. Ladies and gents, it's been a while. Dust off that bottle. Pour yourself a shot. Drink it. Um, and, Dang it. 
And and it, it's a nice shot, actually. Like, we're kind of goofing on a little bit, but it's this really nice shot of, like, girls putting on their lipstick and checking themselves in the mirror and stuff. And meanwhile, Laura is in a stall doing a toot. And then, like, sneaks away to meet James. Yeah. To have a... I would say it's a dumb conversation, but she's talking to James. Yeah, this is... Yeah. This is, You're not a, a turkey. A of, <laughs> we got a glimpse of what the relationship was like. Um, and I'm just going to say the world did not lose... Uh, you know, a great love um, from this relationship when Laura died. Uh, it's, it's fairly academic. She is infatuated, I think, with the idea of the purity of James. Um, right. Well, quoting directly from the the the, the tire, uh, but she didn't love James. No, and and she's trying to explain to him, like, look, I if you keep trying to hang on to me, then I'm gonna go. Like, the only way this can work for me is for this to be a casual thing. Because, again, as we know from the diary, at this point in her life, she is mostly gone. Yeah. And By this point, yeah, she's 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 she knows that something bad is on the horizon, like, really bad is on the horizon, and she's given in to her addictions. Yeah. And, and poor James uh, is just like, you know, you're not turkey. Turkey's just stupid. You're smart. Um, that happens. That's the thing that, that is an almost verbatim line from the movie. Um, so anywho, so, uh, Laura and James kind of have their moment here, but ultimately, and, and, you know, they get down a, a little bit, uh, but ultimately it is a presentation that Laura is completely bouncing around like, Donna doesn't really know who she is. Yeah. James is just this thing that she kind of wants in her life. Meanwhile, like after her, her dalliance with, uh, with James, thank you, Laura. Um, <laughs> then outside school, she runs into Bobby Briggs. Hey, I'm in this a lot. Um, and <laughs> Bobby's like, Bobby arrived at the school earlier on and went to look for her and could not fucking find her. Anyway. Right. And, you know, kind of gives her a little bit of shit, but she calms him down because Laura's very much in control of Bobby Briggs. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, with with ease, she has him. He is very much the Schmitten Kitten. Oh, Schmitten Kitten. Schmitten Kitten. Um, and anyway, so everything's cool there. So Donna and, and Laura go back uh, to Laura's house. And they're just kind of doing, you know, girl talk. And it's, you know, a, a little too much about James. Yeah. Um, James. Because Donna is like, you know, I could probably get down with James. And, uh, you know, Mike's not the kind of guy who, like, writes poetry and that kind of thing. And Laura's like, look, James doesn't write. Uh, and I don't mean... <laughs> He doesn't write poetry. I mean, he's not so good at writing. Um, yeah. But and, and there is James, the, James is so James is so dumb that he actually thought his ABC was the entire alphabet. So when he was saying like he knows his ABCs and realized that there was a whole lot of letters after that. Sure, I know him. It's right in the title. <laughs> not stupid. Um. Uh, <laughs> 
That's why I can spell YMCA. <laughs> He's really good with acronyms. Um, he just thinks they're words, though. He just thinks they're words. I don't think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, anyway, but, you know, it ends in this glum place. All right, everybody, just get ready for the downer that this movie is. Yeah. Like, very much like people that went to see the Titanic and were surprised by the end of it. We all know how this movie's ending. Well, all right. So, Laura is, as she's talking to Donna, and and they're talking about, like, happy places and shit. But Laura's just like, you know, I'm afraid that I'm going to be in this place where uh, the angels can't save me. They can't reach me anymore. And. And very much describing her current situation, which is, you know, I'm so far down at this point. I just don't know that there's anyone able to reach down to get me. And 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 so that's her big concern and her big fear is that she is facing this terrible thing alone. It's corrupting her from within and without. And there's no like there's no pure happiness like as soon as she's alone in her bedroom the first thing she does is like light up a smoke after you know she leaves donna's joint um and lights up a smoke and is just kind of fooling around with her her diary um and being kind of a, a teenage girl but then also it, it's still corruptive it's like it's the angel with the cigarette on the van halen cover you know yeah. Okay, I I thought there was more, but fair enough. Um, no, so- no, no, you, no, you, you're spot on there. I think that there's there's also worth noting that the theme of angels is not just a, a throwaway thing here. Um, there there's a repeating there's a repeating motif of that, um, which kind of uh, makes a, a a reappearance more than once, um, throughout this movie. Yeah. It, it, anyway, so mm, Duncan. Yes. Let's let's get into some Bob talk. How you feel about that? Um, I feel confident that this Bob talk is going to be bitching. So uh, <laughs> Laura pops over to Harold Smith's place. Yeah, because Agent Smith's here, and he's like, he's like, Laura, I've been expecting you. You uh come to chat to me and uh, you even help your landlady take out her garbage. Mrs. Palmer. <laughs> Mrs. Palmer. I I'm see the... you brought your diary. <laughs> and Laura's good old-fashioned freaked out. Uh, yeah. Because she's like, you know, revealing to Harold you know, these missing pages from her diary. Yeah, she's she's got once again, if you have read the the diary of Laura Palmer, you know that she had two diaries. One which was the happy go lucky diary. In fact if you watch the T V show you know this as well. The happy go lucky diary, uh, which she used as a cover for her secret diary, which she hid behind her dresser. Um and that was the place that was safe. Um, and she kept it there so no one would read it. She got paranoid that someone had read it when she was a bit younger. Uh, when she went to check on the book, there were pages missing, which made her freak the fuck out. 
Right. So she runs to Agent Smith, who is like, you seem upset. And uh, Laura's like, look, you know, this thing that's coming after me, Bob, you know, and Harold seems to be kind of hip to Bob a little bit because, you know, she's a bit confessional with him. And um, is, is like, you know, he I can hear him. I and and I know and this is such a good performance, man. Cheryl Lee is just so intense in this scene. She's so intense in this movie, actually. Yeah. There are there are scenes where she legitimately her performance like gives me chills. Um she that like anyone that I I don't know how she didn't end up with more work after this. I really, really don't. Uh, it's like a fucking tour de force of like trauma acting and pain and everything and emotion. And it's all there. It's all written all over her face in her performance. Yeah. And and so she's like, you know, I think Bob stole these pages out of here. And uh, Agent Smith is like, Bob isn't real. You're crazy. <laughs> and she's like, no, no, no. These pages are torn out. So that's real. And he's been coming to me. He's been using me since I was 12 years old. And he's the only person who could have known where this diary was. And finally, Agent Smith is like, well, what does he want? And she's like, "He's he wants to be me or he's going to kill me. Yeah. Oh, Duncan, that's scary. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is this is this is this is the unthinkable options that she has or that she has in her head is that you either become the the thing that terrifies you um, or you die at its hands pretty cool pretty cool yeah it's it's really good and then she grabs Agent Smith by the collar and goes fire walk with me and then gets exorcist face for a second Yep. Now this face we'd seen before, and we'd given it a write off, right? Well, this we, face, I, yeah. Well, we said that it seemed a bit strange. Are you at the time actually made a comment which, in the context, now makes a lot more sense? Um, not that I'm saying that you were nonsensical before, but I was like, yeah, right, Bo. That uh, okay then? Okay, Bo, you have your little theory because <laughs> that's why I dismiss your theory with a laugh. It's not wrong. It's not wrong. <laughs> but yeah, uh, essentially, when you when you succumb in part to the power of the Black Lodge, your face changes, and we saw that with Wyndham Errol. Wyndham Errol lifted uh, when he was speaking to Leo Stein back in the day. Um, so uh, he was speaking to him, he had a burlap sack in his hand, lifted up and went, brought him down, had the white face paint, the dark, like, lipstick, black lipstick lips, the bloodshot eyes, and the, the kind of coloured teeth. Um and you said at the time that you basically thought that when they when they got to a certain point, when certain acts went a certain way for them, uh, a part of that kind of Black Lodge would, would kind of take over, would manifest in them, and that's what happens here. Yeah, so it was a good theory that was was actually proved to be true. Bro. Well, thanks, Duncan. Um, and then Laura tries to rape uh, Agent Smith. Yeah. Um, you know, because after she she gives him like the the Beetlejuice face for a second, um, you know, he's freaked out and she starts sobbing and uh, he's and this is like an important plot point because she's like, look, you keep this diary. He doesn't know about you 
and this will be safe. And then he's like, okay. And then Laura kind of gets on top of him for a second. And then it's just like, I got to go. But because yeah. again, Laura is pinballing all kinds of directions in this movie. Yeah, um, it's also worth saying that in the secret diary of Laura Palmer, she rapes Harold. <laughs> so yeah, and <laughs> this is a little tamer, surprisingly. But yeah. um, but anyway, so she runs out of there um, only to go home and kind of have this vision on her stairwell um, of really the cool. ceiling fan. Well, once again, we've we've come across this before it's this the the kind of electricity plays a role electricity and fire play a role particularly in twin peaks in terms of whether it was the flicker and light right at the very very start um or like certain electrical events um i'm thinking about the lightning that struck during the reveal of uh you know the the, the big storm that happened during the reveal of Wyndham errol's uh first kill Mm-hmm. Um, but fire as well also plays a part and when she's walking up the stairs there's this hum of electricity we tend to see a lot of strobe lighting and a lot of like electrical flashes when we're in the Black Lodge but we see this the, the fans going into gear and then she's walking about halfway up the stairs and she starts to you know freeze up a little bit and starts to drift a little bit Bo. yeah and, and we also learned in the, the room of the, above the convenience store that they do discuss electricity. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's something about that. And we get the, the, the kind of high sound of the fan. We see the superimposed red curtains of the black lodge. Mm-hmm. And, and then we kind of fade from that and it's like, Oh yeah, right. Uh, old super sleuth agent Cooper is uh, in this movie also. Because he's like he, he's musing about the Teresa Banks killer, yeah, and he's like, all right, so the, whoever killed Teresa Banks is going to kill again, and using his you know his Agent Cooper sense, <laughs> um, he's like, all right, here's what I can say: she is, yeah, because Agent Agent Rosenfield plays off this. He's like, all right, let's see, because he goes like, ah, you know, I'll tell you one thing, Albert. When he kills again, he will kill again. You will be the one that helps me catch the killer. And Albert's like, right, let's let's just see for interest sake. I believe you. Let's play this theory out. Um, who's he going to kill? And I will be Rosenfield here, and you will be Cooper. All right. Uh, he's going to kill a young girl underage, yep. but sexually active. Yep. What color of hair does she have? Blonde. Um, is there anything about her that you know that, that's interesting of note? She's preparing a great abundance of food. <laughs> he, he's, he, he's, he, he says like, yeah, she's, she takes drugs, and he's like, that you've literally described half the population of America. What's she doing right now? Preparing a great abundance of food. You're like, that sounds weird. And then, Bo, what happens? We cut to double R. I love how you said that. It sounded like a like a like a radio advert. Yeah. Uh, well, I was excited to see it. Um, you know, it's one of those things. Like, uh, you know, when the show ends, you're like, oh, I wonder. You know, I mean, we know, of course, now there's this other season, but it's like, oh, well, you, maybe you'll never see the double R again. 
And Maybe the last time we'll ever see a slice of pay. I'm glad we didn't do that throughout the show. The ah, you know. But, hey. Um, no, let's not start now because <laughs> we got we got too far to go. So Batman. I'm calling it right now, Duncan. We're gonna get through Firewalk with me, and th- that may be the episode because that's gonna be a three and a half hour monster. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I've got another. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, all right, we, we still got so, come we, on. No, we've still got so far to go in this. Anyway, so um, uh, we cut to the double R where Norma, with super short hair but kind of looking hot, um, she is 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 hanging out uh laura is doing her uh her food thing her uh meals on wheels thing which in the diary just to kind of reference that as we pepper through this because it's so kind of key to not key but it's such a nice background for this movie um but yeah that's so as we talked about earlier that's one of those things that laura tries to do to kind of get some sort of decency in her life you know this thing her that idea as well her, her yeah. idea to help she has an experience with one of the older people um and she decides that she wants to do something to benefit the older people of twin peaks and news wheels is her idea that she pitches to to uh, norma and norma agrees and this is one of her shifts yeah so um you know also of note we have the helga character or whatever her name is that pops yes. into the very last episode of twin peaks only, weird right yeah. and only she has a uh, a severe nosebleed or something and anyway um so <laughs> shelly is uh helping uh laura pack up the car to go deliver the meals what are on wheels and then laura sees a vision in the middle of the road of mrs shuffle and Chiffon. her grandson who is wearing the mask? Yep, and he has a stick. <laughs> yes, and if I told you that they were also like bookended by jugglers, it wouldn't be any less weird. But anyway, so Mrs. Yeah. Chiffon <laughs> hands Laura the uh, this picture, mm-hmm. and she says, um. You should, this would look nice on your wall. And she's like, what? And then uh, the kid is like, the uh, the man behind the mask is looking for the pages. And she's like, the fuck are you talking about, cream corn kid? <laughs> and... <laughs> no, this is adding up. Um... <laughs> And, uh, but uh, anyway, so then he's like, um, he's going to go to the hiding place, uh, uh, under the fan, yeah, which is f- fucking horrifying. Uh, when you think that it's like, oh, Bob is this thing that lives in her fan. It's such a, like a little kid subconscious scare, I think. Um, yeah. so anyway, uh, the, the, Grandmother and her kid, uh, they fuck off. And Laura Palmer as well decides that fucking off seems to be the thing to do. And it's like, hey, Shelly, you know how I said I was going to do all this Meals on Wheels stuff? And she's like, uh-huh. And Laura's like, I'm not doing that. I'm <laughs> I'm having kind of a, a bad trip right now. 
And uh, so I'm going to fuck off. And Shelly's like, fine, I guess I'll go do this or whatever. Better than getting beaten by old stupid Leo. Um, well, no, it's before he does that. <laughs> oh, yeah, fair enough. Um, <laughs> but so then Laura goes home. And it, this is where we get into the horror movie stuff. Yeah. Because it's this whole scene where, like, when we first see her, she is at the foot of the stairs staring at the ceiling fan that's in their hallway or in that stairwell and is just like looking all over the house, uh, almost slasher movie style where these, there are these long shots of her just kind of creeping through the halls, just trying to get to her room without being set upon by Bob. And, uh, even entering her room is this whole, like, you know, yeah, (laughs) And then, sure enough, he's hiding behind her her dresser. Fucking creepy as fuck. Creepy as fuck. He's looking behind her dresser. He's Uh actually, he's being caught red-handed looking for her diary behind the dresser. And he just looks at her with this, like, grin. And she is fucking terrified. I am fucking terrified. Bo is fucking terrified. And she runs out the house fast as fuck it's hides in the bushes the most like it's a real sean spicer move i get that but it's totally logical (laughs) um holds a press conference in the bushes just slowly fades back um (laughs) and so then uh like after running out onto the lawn she's laying down in the bushes and then she sees her father come out of the house and get in his car and drive away and she has this moment where she's like, "It's it, it. That's not who Bob is. That is that can't be Bob." And yeah. so we have the first real moment where Laura understands that Bob, in the shape of her father, has been abusing her. Yeah, and that's horrible. Oh, it's so gross and wrong and horrifying. And so she runs immediately to Donna. And is just it like gives her that are you my best friend, Donna? I mean, wait, Donna it is Donna, right? You don't look Donna. Okay. Donna, <laughs> you're my best friend, Donna. And <laughs> And so Donna brings her in and like, you know, we, we leave her in a place that is is something like kind of safety for a moment. Mm-hmm. Until we have one of the most uncomfortable scenes uh, in maybe any movie ever mm-hmm. where Laura returns home and now her mother and father are, are there waiting for her to come home for dinner. And uh, immediately her dad is like, you know, hey, Laura, how are you? everything cool and it like ray wise is so disturbing in this he's he's amazing when you think of what ray wise was like as Leland palmer in the tv show singing songs emotional crying and all the rest we now get another side of that character um and the side we see is unsettling to say the least yeah it's it's a i'm thinking about it It sends a shiver honestly 
<laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a real mess. Um, so what happens is he sees that she has the you know half heart locket on. Yeah, and he's like, "The fuck is that?" And she, she's like, and goddamn, she's so good in this because she doesn't say a word in this scene, uh, or at least not for a while. She's just horrified with this realization that Bob is sitting across the table from her only he's not sitting across the table from her because he comes over and starts like pawing at her like grabs her hands and is like let's see your fingernails look these are dirty and, and that's touched on in the diary as well that Bob is obsessive about cleanliness which is weird for a strange creature from the Black Lodge he like would chastise and ridicule her if she wasn't wearing clean underwear, uh, demanded cleanliness. And this once again adds to the realization from her point that her dad's actually Bob. Yeah. And he keeps saying like, you know, did your lover give you this? And then he grabs her by the cheek and is just kind of pinching her cheek. And And, like her poor mother uh, is like, Oh, Leland, she doesn't like that. Stop that. And he's just like, uh, just tell me who gave this to you. Was it Bobby? Was it your lover? And finally, he just lets up because I guess mission accomplished. Everyone in the room is terrified. Yeah. Uh, once again, it kind of like what I love about this as well is the impl- we said before there's a there was an implication um, derived from the funeral scene. Not only the fact that there's a a, sim, a symbolic nature as to Leland Palmer falling on the the casket and then being lifted up and down, almost simulating sex against the coffin, and Sarah's overreaction at the time, but you know, don't ruin this moment too, or whatever the exact words are that she says. But there is an indication, maybe in this scene, that she's aware that something's going on. If you know what I mean, you're hurting the daughter, you're hurting the daughter, and then she finally fucking loses it and screams, which kind of breaks everything up, breaks the behavior up, and then he sits down back at the table and then basically says that no one at the table will wait until she washes her hands. And, oh, Cheryl Lee is so good, and she carries herself through and she breaks down. It's a fucking heartbreaking scene in the toilet as she scrubs her hands. Um... Super powerful scene, Well, like you said, there's the whole cleanliness aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But I, I I, always think it's just about wanting to soil the as her as pure as possible. Like, let's, let's yeah. get the cleanest Laura we can, who's yeah. also feeling fragile and vulnerable, and then let's make it dirty. And he, yeah. like you said, even in The Secret Diary, there's all this, like, you stink. You just, like after getting your period you just smell you stink and and like oh it's just this debasement and but you have this moment too where when when sarah and leland are alone in the bedroom it's you know again i think it's all part of bob torturing these poor people but yeah it's it's like i'm gonna let leland alone for a second and let him feel just a glimmer of maybe what's been going on. I don't know that he fully understands what he's done, or, or at least yeah. until you know the real the revelation on the show. 
I th- yeah, he can't, I don't think he can fully appropriate what his his full actions are. You know, I think he knows he has done something, um, but maybe doesn't understand why he has done something. So as a result, like, and he's a fairly emotional character anyway. We know that about Leland Palmer, especially when it comes to his family, especially when it comes to Laura. Uh, that he kind of he breaks down while sitting on the edge of the bed. Um, right, and then goes to her room, which is potentially it's terrifying. Creepy. Yeah, creepy as fuck. And even takes her hand. But instead of him, like, pinching her cheek and being all like, you're filthy. It's just, I love you so much. I'm, you know, I I don't want you to ever forget how much I love you, princess. And it seems like the real Leland. And even Laura looks at this painting she has in her room. (laughs) Angels, everyone. Um, the picture <laughs> yeah, of like table of angels. Yeah, and well, there's the the table of kids, and there's the angel that kind of floating above them, yeah. and like that is very clearly this representation of being lifted out of, lifted up by an angel into something other than this hell that she finds herself in, and he even says, "Is it true?" As if to say, like, "Is is my father really okay? Is it possible?" that maybe there's still a chance at some kind of redemption. But again, because we know what movie we're watching, of course not. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse until someone dies. So, um, Bose condensed five second review of Firewalk with me. <laughs> right. Everything just gets worse and worse and worse. And then, uh, then someone dies actually more people than you would think. Um, so, the painting given to her by the creepy old lady and her son, which she has inexplicably hung on her wall instead of burning um, because it's clearly cursed. Yeah. So the door in the picture opens, Duncan, which is always kind of creepy. And yes, just a thought. <laughs> and Laura is sort of floating through these hallways in this dilapidated house that's, you know, it's got this shitty floral print wallpaper that's peeled away. There's no furniture. It's bare and run down. And then there's baby David Lynch who is like, Hey, welcome and snaps his fingers. And then you're in the black lodge. Yeah. So this must be, this picture is another portal. Potentially, I yeah, I guess. It, but you know, she's such a target of these spirits anyway mm. that uh, who the fuck knows. Um, and I don't, I don't know that there's anything particularly benevolent about uh, Mrs. Chalfant and child or grandchild. Well, this is the thing that the, the show never really touched on, which like obviously there's the the expand out specifically in this movie and beyond. Um, is that like we we were always like oh right there's the black lodge and there's the, the white lodge which we don't really see anything of but we we know there's a black lodge and in a black lodge Bob's a bad man but that's not necessarily it is a it is a dimension filled with mischief like people yeah. that are not nice at all and like in retrospect the 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 grandmother and the son are not nice characters the you know um. The, the man from the other place is not a nice character either. Um, and specifically in this movie, 
we get the full indication of that. that they're all they're all quite nasty, you know what I mean? In their own ways, they're all at it, and they've all, like you say, they've all targeted Laura in some way as the, as the focus of their attention, and none of it's for, for good. It's all it's all for their own perverse pleasures. Yeah, so as we fade into the lodge, um, it is Agent Cooper that we find there, again with uh, the man from another place, or, and, as we're about to find out, different name. Yeah, well, his true identity, which is one of my favorite things ever, Duncan. I, I knew you were gonna like. It's, it's, it's a great, it's a great reveal. It's like a really great reveal. Uh, it makes me smile. So he is Mike's arm <laughs> that has been yeah. severed. Yeah, and and somehow. Like it, it's the piece of the Black Lodge that haunted Mike, and mm-hmm. and now is diminished, I guess, because he's only an arm. I don't know, but it's awesome. So he's like, you know, I am his arm, and then uh, the man from another place shows Agent Cooper the ring and holds it towards him, and then Agent Cooper uh, looks at the camera and says, "Laura, don't take the ring." And uh, and all of that is super rad, and I'm so glad that it happens in this movie. And then, as if to outdo uh, even that, Laura kind of wakes up in her bed and looks over, and there is a bloody as shit Annie. Uh-huh. Annie. Um, <laughs> for, I was waiting to see if you said that. <laughs> how's Annie? Uh, so, but Annie is fucked up. She is not doing well. Yeah, and, so this is Annie, but the, Annie's nose is all messed up because this is how we know Annie from the end of Twin Peaks Season 2, which yeah. is in the future. So well, this is a vision from the future to the past. Things get a little wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. <laughs> at this stage of Twin Peaks, Duncan, as we saw with Philip Jeffries, time ain't always uh, a limiting factor. Um, no, it's also on my side, Bo. Yes, it is. Um, that's a, that's I, I get really it. Way, I get it. Really, way, really, way. Um, too good for this show. <laughs> there's nothing too good for this show. Uh, <laughs> so, Annie. <laughs> How's Annie? Um, How's Annie? I haven't brushed my teeth yet. Um, anyway. How's Annie? So, um, it struck me as funny, Harry. Anyway, um, <laughs> we'll get to it. Uh, I get it. But Annie is like, I have been with Dale and Laura in the Black Lodge. Yeah. The good Dale is still there. Write that in your diary for fuck's sake. And she says that almost verbatim minus the fuck's sake. But yeah, pretty much that. And then Laura is like, huh? <laughs> and not as shocked to see a bloody body in her bed as one might think. But Laura's had a, a tough time of things. Yeah, she's been about. And uh and and of course, uh Laura thinks uh she is Safe again, like she does the, oh, I'm checking around my room. Everything's cool, right, everybody? Clearly, nothing horrifying could possibly happen. And then she sees herself in the painting 
it's really cool because she's at the door of her bedroom. And yeah. so when she looks back at the painting, she sees the perspective of someone standing behind her about to walk into the room in the painting. Yeah. And then uh, finally she wakes up from this nightmare and uh, does not in fact have the Jade ring in her hand, which she had dreamed um, and quite rightfully is like, Hey, how about fuck this painting? (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) That painting comes right off that wall straight away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, again, you get the exorcist, and uh, you burn it and and bury all the pieces in holy water, and then cement around the holy water, and you sink it. Is, At least. That's how you kill Draculas. Um, <laughs> so, we get a little cutaway to uh, the Johnson household, Duncan. Yep. And I'm so glad for this scene. Leo is like her clean and shall like he's showing her how to clean because she you know it's the typical abusive male like you don't you don't know how to do this right and stay down there and you clean that until it's clean and gets dragged away from his disciplining of his you know fellow human being uh deserving of respect and dignity aka his wife um by bobby briggs on the phone who's like hey leo what's going on over here and uh he's <laughs> I've like, got a hey, football over here hey i checked the football and you look cocaine hey come on leo and uh <laughs> bobby's kind of worse um <laughs> probably for some reason is kind of slow he's in our he's in our racial mexican style coming out there which is Interesting. He's a, a, he's a a Mexican appropriated Chicago mobster. Yeah, it's a long show, Duncan. Um, so <laughs> it's like shut up, Duncan. Just <laughs> let it go. Why can't you let me have anything? <laughs> uh, so, uh, anyway, so Bobby's like, hey, I need some cocaine over here. And it's the cocaine, it throws me. It's a, hard, a tough word to say in that voice. Yeah. It's hey, it's the blow over here. That's way better. <laughs> spawn, spawn. Yeah. And um, Leo is like, hey, man, like, I don't have time for this shit right now. You still owe me five grand. And uh, Shelly mouths, five grand? Because uh, she's kind of money hungry, even in this movie, apparently. <laughs> which granted is only a few days before the events of the show. So, um, and so he's like, just call Jacques and give some Jacques Renault's number. So, Hey, welcome back to the show. Jacques Renault. You were dead as hell. Um, yay. yay, Jacques, you figure into this prominently. And, um, <laughs> Bo- Bobby's like, Hey, uh, Leo told me I could get some, <laughs> Uh, I almost went cocaine, and then I, I was yep. riddled with self-doubt, and then I just fucked it all up. But he was like, hey, Leo said you could give me some blow over here. And uh, Jacques's like, oh, oh, no. You want some I cocaine? This one. <laughs> Say hello to my little friend. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> um. 
it's going to snow. Um, and Bobby's like, hey, you got cocaine. That's good. Where can I meet you over here? And uh, Jacques is like, oh, go to where they're sawing wood. And Bobby's like, hey, what are you talking about? And uh, anyway, <laughs> I just yeah, like re- re- doing those the, two voices re- together. <laughs> read between the lines at Twin Peaks. I wonder where they saw wood. Right, exactly. Um, so, oh, man, th- this, I think, is one of the best sequences in oh. in filmic history, Duncan, where we see Laura, who is being just kind of pushed to the edge. She's about to go out for a night on the town yep. with, uh, with, with some rough characters is, <laughs> is dressed up looking all, all slinky and sexy. And Donna rolls in and is like, where are you going? And, uh, and here's what I love about this whole sequence is that this is Laura just swirling the drain. Like she's drinking, she's having a cigarette, waiting, like hair teased out, about to, about to get down to fuck, Duncan. And, wow. right? And Donna's like, what's going on here? And, and Laura tries to keep her away from it. She's like, you need to leave. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I'm not leaving. You, you should give me a drink. And so we start to, like, this is where Donna is like, look, I'm going to go with you and we're like, whatever happens tonight, I'm going to stay with you. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, but before, all right, there's one brief aside here, which is the log lady. Yeah. I love the log lady. And, and again, so do I, and this is this amazing moment as well. Whereas Laura is heading for the roadhouse, um, she runs into Margaret. And Margaret says, when this kind of fire starts, it's very hard to put out. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the tender boughs of innocence burn first, and the wind rises. And then all goodness is in jeopardy. And Pretty great lane. Yeah. And and basically saying like you're once you let this corruption kind of spread, it can spread, yeah, like it can consume all of you. But for Laura, it's this moment of someone who understands what she's going through, mm-hmm. seeing through the facade that she wears, and and just being real, just like the real world, Duncan MTV's real world, where people stop <laughs> acting and they get real, and that's what Margaret the Log Lady does to Laura Palmer. <laughs> And it. <laughs> it's this, like, it's a really, really nice moment um, for this character because we are about to launch into straight up fucking debauchery. Yeah, now we're about to get into, like, some serious debauch shit. Yeah, it's, all right, so Julie Cruz pops by just to be like, hey, remember me, your ethereal <laughs> Twin Peaks angel? And we're like, yeah, <laughs> hey, Julie Cruz. Um <laughs> What better than that? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of said like Julie Cruz was maybe our foot was trapped in a bear trap or something. Yeah, but it was pretty good. <laughs> um, so Donna is on the prowl trying to find Laura, who is yep. crying alone at a table. 
as Julie Crew sings How Can Love Die. Yeah, it's a bit on the nose. It's a bit on the nose. A little on the nosy. Um, but uh, Laura is just, again, devastated. Uh, emotionally raw after dealing with, you know, the log lady and the revelation that her father has been molesting her since she was 12. And now she has arranged to be a date so she can score some coke. And what you're saying, boy, she's got a lot on her plate. She's a busy gal. I think and maybe the, the audience, maybe the audience should cut her some fucking slack. How, yeah. How about you give Laura a break every now and again, people? <laughs> um, Leave Laura alone. It's the Britney but, Spears video. So Jacques Renault uh-huh. points a couple of uh, <laughs> be platted gentlemen uh, yes. towards her table, and they lay some money on the table, and uh, Laura, oh, God, it's such a heartbreaking line where she says, so you want to fuck the homecoming queen? Yeah. And... Man, it's just so sad. <laughs> this movie is so sad. Um, yeah. I remember when David Lynch said he wanted to explore the seven days leading up to Laura Palmer's death? It makes you kind of question David Lynch. <laughs> just a little bit. It's, I mean, it's such a great film. It's just such a sad character stu- character study. Yeah. Um, but so, anyway. As, it's like, what do you call it? It's like, we recently discussed a movie on Teapots called uh, The Short Night of the Glass Dolls. Yeah. Um, where we did, well, you didn't know what the revelation was at the end of the movie, but if you go back and watch that movie again, knowing how that movie ends up, that journey takes a completely different... <laughs> I can see how that frames that very differently, yeah. Yeah, it frames uh... it completely differently, and in the context of this one, we know what happens to this character, we know how this movie ends, so as a result of that, everything that we go through is just a, just an extra tug on the old heartstrings and a kick in the testicles. Um, and yeah, it's... it's oh. It's always time that you've read the diary, and we know we know what she was involved in. And it's, it's fucking heartbreaking. Yeah, it, it, oh, it's so sad. And so the as the guys are like, let's go around the world, and she's like, we're not going around the world with what you're throwing down on this table, young man. Um, <laughs> Don, I mean, she's not a stupid business person. Um, <laughs> I know, I know what the back door is worth, and it's more than that. Um, uh-huh. And Donna cruises by the table now that she's found Laura at the at the roadhouse and is for a second there like she strolls up to the table and and takes a shot, you know, from from one of the uh, the drinks poured on the table and that kind of thing. Kind of showing Laura like, hey, I'm I, I can hang with you and and trying to protect her as well. But what she is not prepared for is the fact that Laura has been here before and is like, you want to know what this is like? Let me show you. And and so she plants one on the guy, like, to her immediate right. And Donna does the same to the other guy. You know, it's a little tit for tat kind of thing. Or tat for tit, as the case may be. Um, and <laughs> it's in poor taste. 
it's it's a poor taste is what it is um so they stroll into the back room at the roadhouse apparently uh or is this another place entirely i was never clear see i thought this felt like like you know the roadhouse after dark because jacques is there yeah jacques is behind the bar um, but not in this room. Not in this room at all. But this room, like, it's a huge room that we never have come across before or since. Um, well, with all the strobe lights, it's it's just it's Black Lodge adjacent. Um, yeah. But we'll say it's we'll say it's at the the roadhouse for quickness and ease of continuing. Sure. Story. So anyway, uh, Jacques and Laura make out for a second. Um, and all right, so the the crazy thing about this scene is it's a bunch of people slow dancing to this grindy blues track, and oh, like there's a couple of ladies dancing because that's naughty, and uh, some people are just straight up naked, and the music is so loud the scene is subtitled. And it's such an interesting decision, you know, that it's like, okay, we're going to leave the music up because this is what it's like when you're in a bar and when you're in this kind of environment. And it is really kind of unsettling in a weird way. And then they start passing drinks around to each other. And Donna gets slipped a Mickey, I think. Uh-huh. Because she starts to get a little loose. Um, but yeah, so, you know, like Laura's dancing with a dude and he's starting to, you know, grab her boob and get really frisky and things are really heating up. Like people are just out and out fucking. Uh, not not totally, but not far off. And then the next thing you know, as they're partying... Laura is there with, I think it's Renette Pulaski who's with her. Yeah. And they're hanging out in a booth and like, it's nothing but just booze and drugs and this music and it's loud and it's just minutes long of the, the, like this weird subtitled scene. And Laura's got a dude going down on her under the table. And then Renette is like, Hey, isn't that Donna Hayward? And Laura looks over and kind of sees her friend with her top off, leaning back as some dude's about to get down. And Laura loses her shit and is like, you've got to get her out of here. Get her out of here right now. And of course, Donna is all fucked up and drunk and on drugs and doesn't want to go. And It's just dawned on me. It's just dawned on me because she says to her, don't ever wear my clothes. Yeah. Right, because she ties a jacket around. When she ties a jacket around her waist, that's when she becomes promiscuous. And, yeah. And the, t- and the TV series when she puts on the sunglasses. That's true, yeah. Ah! Uh-huh. It's, David it's Lynch, you smart motherfucker. Very clever, David Lynch. Um, so there must be something to do with wearing her clothes brings out a particular aspect of that wild side that... Right, it's just you know, the... That, ambient bobness of it all <laughs> ambient bobness <laughs> <laughs> come off on your clothes <laughs> you never get me off 
<laughs> ambient bobness is the name of my new scented candle range. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, I really like the nice. clean linen one. Yeah, <laughs> we have the a clean panties one. Out. That's what it would be. We have a we have a Douglas fir. We have a cherry pie one coming out. We have a damn fine coffee one. That's the Twin Peak range. So, you know, nice ambient bob. Um, but yeah, so that scene is. I just think it's an amazing sequence. Like I say, I think I think it it starts with this scene with like Laura and Donna establishing like Laura doesn't want Donna to be like her, but now Donna wants to challenge that because Donna still wants to be part of her life and, and and wants to help her. But all she does is end up corrupting Donna. Like there, like there's no pulling Laura up. It's dragging Donna down, dragging everyone down. Yeah. Right. And so the next day there's a scene where they're talking and and yes again it's Laura saying don't wear my stuff and also you know I I love you you're a great friend but just please 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 don't be like I am. Yeah. Oh, Duncan. <laughs> um it's so sad this whole movie is so sad. Uh, anyway, hold it together, Ryan. Still hold it together. Yep. So stay on target. Stay on target. Um. <laughs> so as the as Donna and Laura are kind of Laura uh, are kind of <laughs> hanging out on the couch, I slipped into a little James there. <laughs> James's voice all of a sudden. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, he comes over to uh, pick Laura up at Donna's place. And there's a moment where he sees Laura with Renette Uh and we haven't gotten there yet, but we're heading that direction to kind of explain that image. Yes. We're going to get some flashback. Uh huh. And, but first we have a crazy person on the road, an elderly crazy person Uh driving a Winnebago uh and <laughs> so it's mike behind the wheel naturally yep driving one-handed yep well i mean mike's kind of a badass but anyway so mike <laughs> is uh um they get stuck in traffic kind of or just like somebody's crossing the road on a walker and mike's whipping around him in the winnebago so he can pull up beside leland who he recognizes as being bob but Leland is just laying on the engine. Yeah. And Mike's yelling, you stole the corn. I had a can over the store. And which is nonsense, of course. But, the, you know, again, it's that we're at the room above the convenience store. Yeah. And there's this dog barking, the Leland's gun in the engine. Mike's yelling. It's just a scene of utter chaos, and Leland is has the sweats, and like Mike is actually yelling, "It's your father! It's him!" And he's got, uh, as we see, a jade ring on his finger. Yeah. Now here's a, here's a question. Okay, I'm going to raise this question. All right, I'm in. It would appear that Mike, from this altercation, knows that Leland is possessed by Bob. Yes. However, when he's questioned in season one and in season two, 
he doesn't know who Bob's possessing. Yes, but he, he could only have been, knows the location. Yeah, but he could he could be on one of his fugues, like he's not on the hyperparadol or pimadol oh, yeah. or whatever. Which would explain his erratic behavior. Exactly. Right. And then when he's back on the juice, he knows that Bob is around, but he can't remember who it is. Just that he's right, there. Okay, yeah. So that's my bullshit excuse. But I like that bullshit excuse. It passes for me. Excellent. So um, then we have some uh, some flashbacks here of... Uh, one Teresa Banks with Leland Palmer. Yeah, because we knew that Leland Palmer killed Teresa Banks. Uh, yep. We found out that in season two of Twin Peaks. Um, and yeah, so we, we flash back to that. Uh, he filmed her through Pages of Flesh World, which I think is actually more a missing pieces part than it actually is. This, I, I want to say. I think that's right. Um but we'll 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 go ahead and drop it in here that yeah, yeah he, it's, he's it's found such her in a, flesh world. Yeah, it's like an additional thing. We know that and we know that anyway if you're like you know that anyway from the diary of Laura Palmer and you know, watching the missing piece. But anyway, yeah, he we, we see him getting down and getting jiggy with her. Um and then he kinda of floats the idea, you know, maybe you've got a couple of friends, these friends you were talking about that you like to do stuff with. Um, you know, maybe one day I'm just saying you three, me, makes four. Right. A lot of Leland to go around. Well, and he does this creepy thing where he, like, grabs her nose and, and, and says, like, who am I? Yeah. And she's like, I don't know. He's like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so the, then we cut back to them in the car. And Leland, I mean, this is immediately after the Mike incident where they're, yeah. like, in a gas station. He's like... Can you believe it? I mean, that guy came out of nowhere, right? Like, what's going on in this world where somebody just comes out of nowhere and screams at you like that, right? And you can tell that there's this panic. Like, he recognizes this dude, and maybe he's not sure how. Yeah. But there's definitely something to it. And Laura's like, no, we just sit here for a second. The fuck is going on? And he's like, I don't know. The guy just came out of nowhere, you know? And... um. Then we cut to the later flashback of him going to this out-of-the-way seedy motel and heading for his menage, uh, or cators, maybe, is it a, if it's a foursome. Um, and looks in the window, and there's his daughter with Renette Pulaski. And, yeah. you know, that's not cool. So, no, he freaks the fuck out. Exactly, and also uh, runs into uh, Teresa Banks again, and it's just like, no, no, it's fine, it's fine, I, I gotta get out of here. And on his way out of the parking lot in this flashback, there's the little boy in the mask just hopping around with his stick until he disappears. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, no explanation for that, but, but yeah. I, I, I think it's, like you said, if these are mischievous spirits, it's just like, look at what Bob's getting up to. This is fucked up. Um, yeah. Just peeking in on Bob's antics. Um, so anyway, uh, it cuts back to the present, and it seems as if maybe 
Bob has settled in a little bit into Leland. Like he's like he's calmer now. And uh this is also the point where Laura asks him, like, Hey, did you come home last week? And he's like, No, I didn't come home last week. Like, you know, when she saw Bob hunting for her diary. And she's like, Okay, are you sure? I thought I saw you. And then he's like, You know what? I did. I did. I had to stop in for like a jacket or some shit. And uh, so, you know, this is just more confirmation that, you know, yeah, his, uh, he's Bob. Uh, he is Bob. And, but it's just, it's final confirmation for Laura, who had had some doubt, I think, that her father is, yeah, the evil spirit that is trying to claim her as well. It's, ugh. Ugh. Uh, yeah. We're going to need a shower after this review. Oh, I know. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's so, we get some kind of Lynchian moments here where uh, Laura remembers that Renette Pulaski had the jade ring on that she saw on Mike's finger, you know, in the whole car incident, in the Winnebago incident. And then the electricity flips out. Uh, and Laura is demanding, you know, to know like, who, who are you really? Yeah. Um, although she knows, I mean, at this point, I, there is kind of the horrifying revelation later. Uh, but she seems to understand at this point, I think she just doesn't know who Bob is proper. Just that Bob is influencing her father. Yeah. Um, so we get another flashback from Leland Palmer where he brains the shit out of uh, Teresa Banks. Which is the opening scene. So we see him smash the telly and then go to town. Yep. And uh, all right, let's we also see the um, the a quick diary thing where uh, her normal diary where there's the key and safety deposit box key and the baggie of cocaine so yep. uh laura takes a little snoot out of that it's just a little like hey remember this from the show and also <laughs> laura is dumbing herself with cocaine um <laughs> so now we get to bobby briggs again hey and uh <laughs> so laura is like look i am just about out of cocaine and it turns out i need a lot of cocaine and Bobby's like, "Hey, I can get you some." And uh, like he's like, "I got a big score over here." And <laughs> over here. And um so he invites her to the big score, which he has arranged with, you know, Jacques Renault. So This is going to go smooth. Well, especially when you bring your girlfriend who is fucked uh yep, she's high as a kite high as a kite drinking really doing it up and they're kind of like sweeping the the uh flashlight around the woods like we saw on the show it's very much that thing and laura is being real loosey-goosey with everything that's going on but like giggling it up kind of thing and so the the dude shows up uh, the guy that they're supposed to meet, the uh, the drug dealer, 
and uh, Bobby, uh, well, in fairness, the guy shows him a gun and Bobby flips out and shoots him and uh, kills him pretty, pretty dead. And he's got a whole lot of cocaine. FYI. Yeah, like you would call this a double tap bull. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> like he shoots him and then the guy starts to get back up. Is like, oh, fuck. What'd you shoot me for? And then Bobby finishes him off. Mm-hmm. And Laura starts to flip out. And it's kind of this moment. It, it, it's sort of rock bottom for Laura because now. She has not only debased herself, she has kind of at least been witness to a murder. Yeah. And Bobby is rightfully freaked out about it, but Laura starts uh, starts really giggling. And it, you could almost see the Bob. You know, it, this is just the delight of chaos. Yeah. And so Bobby is like, hey, help me bury him over here. And Laura kind of gets into that in a dumb way uh, and starts putting leaves and shit on him. And it's like it's this really bizarre scene. And Bobby feels, I think, appropriately freaked by this. Yeah. And meanwhile, Laura is just taunting him. And she's like, hey, Bobby, you killed Mike. Yeah. Do you know what you did? Hey, Bobby. That's Mike. You just killed Mike. And And plus, she's laughing. She cackles all the way through while she's doing it. Yeah, it's almost like uh, an Evil Dead kind of thing. Yeah. And where she is just deliriously happy about the most awful shit. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the whole scene. It's just really. It really affecting. Like, I think this whole back end just gets worse and worse. Um, I, I really, yeah. It's a descent. And it's so very, very sad. But so James shows up for a second because. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, in fairness. And, so this does a good thing, which is not only to get rid of James for the rest of the movie. Because uh, I think this is it for him, right? Don't we? And he doesn't hey. he fuck off. Um, uh, maybe I, I don't know. We'll we'll find. No, out. no, he picks her up later on. Oh, that's right. Her. We do have the yeah, last yeah. scene with them. Sure. So, which is the, the the final meeting in the diary, right? And so James rolls up on his motorcycle and is like, "Hey, Laura, you look like you." And she's like, "Oh, fuck! All right, let me deal with this guy." And she looks behind her and her father is standing on the porch watching her talk to James and basically she sends him away and you know again if you're approaching this film symbolically which Lil told us to do with her crazy dance this is her pushing away the last innocent thing in her life yeah Um, because the next shot is her in bed doing a, a rail um you know just getting ready to get fucking zonked yeah um, which yeah. i appreciate don't get me wrong we all have our weekends 
I just love how many nicknames you know for taking drugs, but... Um, <laughs> I, well, you know... It's schooled every time I record you. I'm like, rail, right? Let's get that random. Oh, rail is not an uncommon. Like, doing a rail? No, I've never heard of that before. A bullet? Well, but yeah, she talks about bullets and uh, Secret Diary a bunch. Um, uh-huh. Anyway, all right. So let's, uh, let's jete um, from Laura doing some toot to um Leland Palmer slipping his wife a Mickey. Yep. Uh, that good old time tested Leland Palmer activity. <laughs> like of just Bobby. drugging his wife on occasion. Yeah, like, let's drug my wife so I can fuck my daughter. <laughs> yeah. And you we might get the impression, Duncan, that perhaps it's going to be a little more than the usual sexual assault because before she is claimed by the Sandman, Duncan, which is the nicest way you could say of being drugged <laughs> by your husband, um, <laughs> is she sees a white horse, which uh, if you follow has always been a uh, precursor to death. Yeah. And Leland goes out aside. Uh, Flips on the fan. Mm-hmm. And we cut to Laura in bed, all whacked out on the booger sugar, as Bob slips into her window, all creepy as fuck like. Yeah. Which makes you wonder how. Like, he turns on the fan, which must beckon Bob, right? I'm assuming. Um, and then he the, what does he go downstairs outside and then climb up the side of the house so he can come in the window? I always thought this was sort of her defense mechanism of right. this is the guy that comes in the window. So it's not him literally coming in the window. She just sees it like that. It's her father right. coming into the room, but she sees this gross Bob coming through the window. Right. Yeah. This this scene gets graphic. It really does because it, it it begins with Bob climbing atop her, and yeah. and she's inviting it like she's seducing Bob in this scene. Um, yeah, to a point, you know. There's still yes. this kind of repulsion, but she also is demanding finally to know who he is really. Yeah, and while he's fucking her. Uh, she's demanding this. And again, Cheryl Lee, holy God. Just put, leaving it all on the field, Duncan, is what we call it here in the States. Um, <laughs> yeah, if this is the last time she's going to play this character. You're going to know, you're going to know that she played this character. It's fucking, it's great. It's a great performance. And she looks up to see her father's face hovering over her. Yeah. And she gives a top 20 scream. Yep, a uh, Cheryl Lee scream, which I I think she's fucking amazing at. She's um, quite good. Yeah, a bit of trivia about this scene. Um, originally, uh, the plan was Bob to fuck her, then Leland to fuck her, and then David Lynch wanted a severed pig's head uh, just up here, right after Leland, for no reason at all. Hmm. And uh, Cheryl Lee refused. She said it was the only thing she said no to David Lynch in the entire movie. About she's like, no, not doing that. Right, I can justify everything else, but I'm not going to get down with a pig, a severed yeah, pig. Pretty head. much, yeah. Um, so. 
so there's a I would call that breakfast awkward the next day in the Palmer household. <laughs> Could you please pass the sugar? Um Donna. Not that sugar. Not that sugar. Where's your friend Donna? Will she pass the goddamn peas, please? <laughs> pass the peas, Donna. Donna. Oh, Donna. Pass the goddamn peas, Donna. Thank you. Please just pass the peas, Donna. Ugh. Uh, but no. It's one of my favorite things in all of Twin Peaks is Donna, pass the peas. Um, it's so funny to me. Anyway. She wouldn't pass the peas to the recaster, Bo. <laughs> yeah. That that's probably what it was. She wouldn't pass the peas. That's not in the script. Um, anyway. So uh, Laura takes off. And Le- like Leland uh, is trying to talk to her, and it's like I really want to talk to you. Um, and Laura is just naturally horrified and it can't get her shit together. Leaves the house, hears electricity traveling along the lines beside her, yeah, as if she is being stalked. Even then, even walking outside the house, she is not free of Bob. Um, and. We have uh, a school montage where the one place she feels safe, the time flies by, and then suddenly she is forced out again into the world. The world that has chewed up and used her, and the world, Duncan, that she will only be part of a little longer. Um, In fact, when she leaves the desk we have a lingering shot of that empty desk as if to say she will never sit there again. Um, so Bobby and Laura are making out at his place. I assume it's his place. Otherwise it's just a garage with a couch that they found in the neighborhood. And, uh, Laura is just kind of like, I think Laura genuinely does care for Bobby, at least on some level, even yeah. though as secret diary shows us that relationship eventually becomes this thing about getting drugs. It's, yeah, it's a control mechanism by her. She knows that she can get exactly what she wants from him because he is more in love with her for the most part until he finds his infatuation with Shelley. And at that point, it is literally just like some sort of sham relationship, mostly involved with their drug dealing. Yeah, yeah. And but in this moment, I mean, she's obviously very vulnerable, but she needs to numb herself just so she can live under the same roof as the man who's raping her. Um, That seems terrifying. But also, it's a weirdly kind of salacious shot of her drinking these like smugglers of vodka or something i'm not sure if that translates to scotland you know a smuggler is right no. the little airplane bottles of liquor oh right yeah we call them miniatures okay we call them well they ha- they go by many names duncan <laughs> i've always heard them referred to as smugglers um, i kind of love that i kind of love that phrase I'm, I'm stealing it all right fair enough i got the uh the blather earlier the the uh blether 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 i got it i was there always think leather with a b blether I'm, it's fine you don't have to correct me every time um 
Sounds like someone's Great. been doing a couple of smugglers during this record. You know, the, like that's the point where the listeners are going to be like, "That's it. That's where the, that that's where the animosity began." Um, <laughs> it was just a matter of time after that before the whole thing exploded. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, so uh, Laura is, is in bed dressing all sexy like because she's about to go out on the town, um, and. Oh, man. All right. One of the sadder moments in all of Twin Peaks is her looking at this painting of the angel. Yeah. Only Duncan. Ain't no angel anymore. It fades away. There's nobody left. No one's looking over her. No one's protecting her. No one's Mm -mm. looking after her. No. I mean, that's it. There's, There's no one left to save her. Which there's oh, so so fucking good. There's a scene, yeah. We'll talk about Renette. Yeah, so oh, so good. Mm. Oh, I love this fucking movie. Love it's, this fucking movie. It's awfully, awfully good. Um, so we see yes. see her take off with James. She climbs down the trellis and and runs off with James. And he's like, "You're dressed pretty." And she's like, oh, fuck, just get me far enough away. And then I'm going to f- just hop the fuck off this bike. Well, but we have a, like a, the tender moment. I can't believe I forgot this. Uh, the tender moment in the woods yep. um, between Laura and James. But uh, like at this point, Laura's kind of just far gone. That's and what she pretty much says to him. Yeah. There's nowhere left to go or there's no place left, is there, James? And, uh, you know, he says, James, you're going to have to, as of tomorrow, get used to saying the phrase, you don't look like Laura. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Do you know, you know who I look like? You look like (laughs) Laura. I know. I just wanted to hear you say it one last time. (laughs) And she's like that. She's also, you'll be able to, as of tomorrow, stop saying you don't look like Donna. Because Donna will look like Donna. Oh, that's weird. My brain hurts. <laughs> it's just mind blown. <laughs> and then, all right. So James is, is, you know, of course, confused by Laura's morbid um, yeah. musings here. James confused by words, you know. Right. But Laura ultimately is, smacks him. And he's like, well, I guess you hurt the ones you love. And she's like, you mean the ones you pity? Fucking stupid James. (laughs) And he's like, you can say whatever you want to me. One one plus one is what, James? One plus one is what? Shut up! Shut up! (laughs) No, I'm not good at math. Um, (laughs) Ask me about Charlotte's Web. Uh... So, uh, finally, like he, he keeps telling her that he, he loves her. And there's a moment where she kind of believes him. And there's a second where it seems like, well, maybe there is hope for me. And then she says, oh my God, if he finds out, he'll kill you too. Of course. And so because she feels so alone, 
uh, she has to push him away again. And although it is kind of hilarious that she just drops the, do you know Bobby killed a guy? And James like, what? (laughs) And she's like, nothing, but he did. He totally killed a guy who did, you know, Bobby did what killed a guy who did. (laughs) And he's like, Oh, (laughs) all right. Um, yeah, if only James could have remembered this in the TV show, he could have held it as some sort of blackmail over Bobby when Bobby started picking fights with him. But, right, but you know, he that for gold... continuity purposes, I could believe that James would forget that. So absolutely, that goldfish well, memory. Well David Lynch. Get him anywhere. <laughs> so, and and this is kind of the the moment that uh, James describes in the show, where she's like, "You don't know me. Nobody knows me. Donna doesn't know yeah. me." And they go know, out on his bike. They're driving back some bit of a distance until she like waits for the bike to slow down then jumps off the bike basically and runs away into the woods leaving James James doesn't pursue her which is one of his biggest regrets in the TV show however she knows exactly where she's going because she comes out on a a little uh, Leo and uh, Jacques Renault which was their meeting that they'd arranged yep having a little party um <laughs> what are you doing back on the show chris isaac <laughs> having a little party um i wonder if i wonder if i wonder what our buddy justice would say about a party our buddy justice yeah john justice Wheeler. oh shit you gotta give me John Justice, we, you got to give me the full name, Justice. He's the only character in this that has the word Justice in his name. I, It's just not the first thing I leap to. Justice sounds like he should be like on a hour-long drama where he's the father of a rascally daughter and his <laughs> wife's died, but he's keeping law and order in a small town. Well, let's try that again. I wonder what Billy Zane would say about a party. Mm. <laughs> Anyone getting... Tied up. Mm, good. Um, because this, this, they go up to uh, Jack's cabin, and this is the scene that Jack has described. He uh, described it in the uh, in the TV show. Um, they all get a bit kinky, uh, but ultimately they tie. Um. They tie Laura up. Now, Laura in the past has apparently been into that, but is freaked the fuck out at the moment. That is the last thing she wants to happen. Um, but happens anyway. And they're not alone because someone appears at Le Caban. Uh, and that would be Leland. Yeah. <laughs> who, who is peeking in the window, like, not the creepiest thing he's ever done, but it's up there. Um, and. Then we get like after after the the fun goes down because we've got Ronette's in there, Laura's in there, uh, Leo and Jack. Jack goes out uh, of the cabin and is is maybe going to get beer or going to take a leak or something. Uh, and as he's walking out, Leland attacks him, knocks him out, buddies him up, and then Leo comes out, sees what's happened, freaks out jumps in his car and drives off, leaving the two girls tied up in the cabin with Leo Bob, uh, or Bob, uh, no, not Leo Bob, uh, Leland Bob, or Bob Leland. Or Bobbin. Uh, 
or bobbined or a leob. That um, sounds like a chimney. Oh, oi there, Miss Bobbined. <laughs> I'll change, clean your shoes for a shilling. <laughs> don't know why I made them kind of part Nick <laughs> Van Dyke, part Michael Caine. I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a Merry Christmas, it is, Mr. Bobbined. Yeah. So, I don't know what it is, Master Wayne, but some people just want to see the world burn. And then that chimney gets dirty, Master Wayne. We've got a hard dip van dyke to clean it out. Some people just want to see a fire burn, Mr. Wayne. Um, <laughs> but see, so yeah, um, the, the two right, girls hold- are... Oh. Just, we got to pause here in case you weren't going to do it, and I'm correcting you ahead of time. Uh, um, to talk about the, the most, like, indie ass scene in in this uh sequence that is also terrifying so Uh leland has the girls tied up and is driving them before him like sled dogs while someone just shakes a flashlight at him in an otherwise dark scene yeah well this is the thing that they do like there seems to be uh it's a very strong visual choice about walking through the woods in twin peaks like, all the scenes of any characters walking through the woods in Twin Peaks, there is an unnatural flashlight facing the character. Or if we're looking from the perspective of a character, there's a flashing, shaking light. And it's used all the way... It's not just an accident. It's, it, it's like some sort of theme that David Lynch has decided that he's going to use to portray the woods in the show. It's, it's fucking genius. But it's terrifying, because the two, the two actresses here, uh, much respect... Renette Pulaski's uh, the, the woman that's playing her because she's fucking incredible as well. The two of them are absolutely terrified and he's behind them with this maniacal grin as he takes them to where we know will be the last resting place really uh, of a living Laura Palmer which is this abandoned train car um, and this is to me where it's I, uh, so powerful this scene but there's so much that goes on, but this is where, to me, that I think the full gravity of everything kind of hits home. Um, specifically with, because we know that Laura Palmer was killed by her dad, right? We know that. Uh, it was explained in the show, but we never saw it. Um, and we see it here. And it's, it's a really powerful scene. It's a really powerful scene because she's begging her father not to kill her as she's tied up. Um, and Leland's losing it, losing yeah. it, he's, and puts a he's... mirror that she has to like. If she looks down, she sees herself. Yeah, and her her makeup is all over the place. Her face is like there's so much anguish, so much pain. Uh, and Renette's at the side, and a vision of an angel, the angel maybe from the picture, arrives but doesn't look down to protect over Laura, but rather looks down to protect over Renette. Oh. And that is the last thing that Laura sees before her dad fucking murders her. It's... Oh, man. It's really fucking good. It's, it's really, 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 really good. And um, the look of resignation on her face. Yeah. Of like, oh, okay, well, that's it then. You yeah. Know? Like, she's still I, terrified, but it's just like, oh, okay, well, I'm not... I, I, I don't survive this. Yeah. And... Renette, like, basically, Mike arrives, uh, one hour Mike, so once again, he's either still on the, the, the whatever the name of the drug is, um, 
or something. Although that theory, now that I'm thinking longer about it, doesn't seem to hold water um, for a scene at the end. But uh, yeah, so he arrives, he manages to pry open the the, the door to the carriage. Renette Pulaski falls out. Um, he and... Mike notably throws the jade ring yeah. into the car. Yes. L- and... Yeah, Laura gets it on. Yeah, which Dale Cooper told her not to do. Yes. Now, this is weird because if you wear, if you do not wear the jade ring, he can take you over. If you wear the jade ring, he has to kill you. Right. Right. I think that's the rule. Um. So it makes me wonder why Dale Cooper would tell Laura not to put on the ring. Is it to save her life, or is it to condemn her life? Um, I think I think it's to save her life. I th- I think his because yeah, basically yes, the jade ring is Bob repellent. Yeah, and the reason Mike wants to give it to her is because that way she won't be possessed and corrupted and blah blah blah. Because one yeah. presumes like if he's got Leland so corrupted that it's just going to continue to spread from person to person. Like, you know, maybe the mother is next or maybe it's Donna, you know? And so to be forced to be killed doesn't allow that corruption to spread, which is also what Margaret was saying when they, when she ran into Laura outside the roadhouse, which is, Hey, if the, you know, if you let these embers burn, it it will continue to to spread, and yeah. um. So yeah, uh. So then he he murders her, and uh, thus ends the horrible horrible life of Laura Palmer. Yeah, he wraps her in plastic, puts her in the water, and then walks calmly. Uh, to Glastonbury Grove uh, and then enters the Black Lodge and when in there is separated from Bob uh, and then is levitated off the ground by Bob um, while Mike and uh, the arm both sit in chairs. Now once again Mike looking quite sedate here which uh, slight continuity error maybe it probably can be explained away but I, I don't know now that I'm thinking I'm focusing on that for some reason um, and uh, the arm basically cries for their, their kind of sweet sorrow their their cream corn garbiosier yeah. um, and Bob extracts the, the blood on the clothes of Leland onto the ground which is then converted into into this cream corn substance, which they then consume, because this must be their life force, pain and suffering, um, you know, fear, etc., etc. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's like not a happy scene uh, at all. Uh, Leland, obviously, clearly oblivious to, to what is going on, but we know the sad, sorry fate of Leland Palmer as well. Uh, that possession doesn't leave him, and he's still got at least one more person to kill in the TV show, um, who happens to look like Laura. Uh, so, yep. Uh, and then we, of course, get the reveal of 
P. Martell is going fishing and <laughs> finds a bag on, on the beach. Um, so, yeah. but yeah, we have that moment, and then we're we're back in the Black Lodge for our big finale, which is actually as happy an ending as we're going to get in this movie. Yeah, the theories about the end of this movie don't hold water as to where the new season has gone. Um, now, I, I will tell you what the theory... So essentially what we have is we have Dale Cooper standing beside um, uh, Laura Palmer, who's sitting in a chair, who is at first crying uh, until they look up and see an angel. Uh, so her angel has come back to her, hovering above her, and she smiles, kind of laughs... Uh, and the tears still coming down. Uh, and the, the the fan theory suggestion about this is that they have elevated from the Black Lodge to the White Lodge, and that's why the angel is protecting them. Um, which, that doesn't make sense. Um, like I say, there's a new season coming. Um, if, there was, if this was a happy ending, there would be no need for a new season. But that's not the end of everything either because we need to unless I'm jumping and missing pieces here, we need to link up the last two elements of our story which was we see Annie who has been rescued um, That is missing pieces Is it? Right, so I'll keep that out and um, what about the the the, the Dale Cooper headbutt? That is also missing pieces Dear God, I've I've just watched the whole thing. So yeah, so that we get this we get this lovely scene of of her crying and smiling. Um, right, as if optimist. Yeah, yep. as as if her angel has finally come to her, potentially in the form of Agent Cooper. Um, yeah, she she's had to she's had to die to find the relief and peace that she did not have in life. Well, I mean, don't we all ultimately, Duncan? Um, <laughs> sorry, I mean, after watching this movie, that just seems like the way to go. Um, yeah. You, the other read I have on this scene oh, that uh, I think could be the crueler version of it uh-huh. is that because you see so much flashing light around the angel... That it could just be another of the Black Lodge's cruelties, and that her kind of happy laughter is more mad laughter. Could very well be. I mean, what what we know about, like moving out of this, what we know about the events that have happened afterwards is we are assuming that this scene must be shot after Agent Cooper ends up in the Black Lodge. Yeah, but we also know that. Laura had said to Cooper, I will see you in 25 years, and then disappeared. So there's a slight continuity error there as well. Once again, we won't hold David Lynch's sure. feet to the, yeah, to the coals because this is, is Twin Peaks. Uh, and also it's the swan song. Like He doesn't know if he's ever going to be able to come back to this story again. So why yeah. not leave it in a place where, in theory, Laura might be ultimately saved? Yeah. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, this movie's really fucking good. Like, really, really, really good. And I still... I, I know, like, emotions were raw at the time when it came out. Uh, and people felt like David Lynch had betrayed them. And 
the movie was booed at Cannes and, you know, universally panned by critics. Uh, very few people stood up for this movie. Um, I don't understand it. I, I, I genuinely don't. And I don't know if it's... Like, I've just watched a whole TV show with you. We've done all the reviews of them. And then I watched Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. I think it is, like, a grand extension of the story in a way which is really quite fascinating. Yes, tonally, it's not as quirky as a TV show. It's a lot more somber and dour and all that, yeah. Yeah, but people people may argue that maybe they were watching the TV show for the quirkiness, but it's also the reason people stop watching the show. Um, So you can't tell the story of Laura Palmer without removing a lot of that stuff, focusing on what's... Like what is a truly tragic event? So I, I love that. I once again we get a fantastic score by uh, Baglametti, who's mixing kind of smooth jazz and kind of bluesy tones and orchestral work is fucking phenomenal in this. I mean, really, really incredible. It works so well with the with, with the movie. It shot great, it's acted great. Um, I think it's like. It's the, it's like everyone always says that David Lynch has a bit of horror in his movies. Like all his movies have like some element of surreal horror in them. And I've read many articles of people saying that you know they can't wait for you know that David Lynch to release his horror movie, and he's already done. This is a horror movie, um, and it's it's incredible. I like some of the performances. Like how Cheryl Lee did not get nominated for an Oscar. Is like is is fucking mind blown. How like Rewise didn't get put up for you know best supporting actor is beyond me. I I don't. I, I it goes to show what contempt the genre has uh, in the eyes of the Academy. But I don't, I don't think you're going to find a more powerful performance um, than 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 what Cheryl Lee kicks in here or something that just is so wonderfully. Dark and macabre, like Raywise does. I, I don't. I, I just don't see it. I, I genuinely think this movie is is pretty fucking incredible. Um, uh, yeah, I think I think time has been kind to in a lot of ways because you look now, scores for the movie are pretty high, and there's a whole hell of a lot of people, new generation in particular, but a whole hell of a lot of people that I went back and what they said originally about it. Yeah, it 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 really is a one of those movies that gets better every time I see it. Um, yeah. I like it more. I like different things about it. Um, coming off watching, you know, the the two seasons, and I, I've never really done this before, where just on a tear have gone through all these episodes and then fire walk with me. Um, yeah. so that's been really fun. In addition to supplementing it with the books that we've talked about, or one of which we've talked about, and I yeah, I just. It feels really satisfying. It's incredibly depressing um, because of all the things that are good about it, because it, it deals with very difficult subject matter. It, it has Cheryl Lee in a performance that is sexual, but not, but, but not sensual, you know, it, yeah. it is a, a, a very big part of that character's personality, but it's never played for titillation. Um, which thank Christ, uh, even yeah. David Lynch wouldn't, wouldn't go that far. Uh, like I said, that sequence in the bar is one of, one of my favorite things that I've seen in forever because I just forgotten how good that was. 
Um, and yeah, it's an incredible, incredible film. And, and honestly, you know, to the point about it being a horror movie, if I said, okay, the, it's the story of a girl who has an evil spirit trying to possess her. And as a result of the possession, she is driven down this road of self-destruction and meanwhile, this same spirit is also possessing her father. Yeah. That's a horror movie. Yeah. I, and I think that's totally what's when happening I, when, in this. When I think about how many, specifically now, in like the last two or three years, how many possession movies have come out and how they all follow a very similar formula. The formula is not that far removed from what happens, you know, from a core structure of Fire Walk With Me. And it's to David Lynch's credit that his ability to craft a story, which is not the most original story in the world, but feels very like a very unique, very fresh take. Um, is well, what makes the movie stand out to me. Yeah, it's all the people in masks hopping around and shit. And and there's a reason for all that, I'm sure. Like, I don't think David Lynch is trolling the audience that hard, but. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that there's ever going to be a good answer for why that why that uh, that boy is hopping around with a mask. Uh, I'm sure someone has a theory that's pretty close. But... I, I read I read a, a really interesting theory, Bo. Well, go ahead. Uh, the interesting theory that I read was that actually the the kid beside the grandmother is actually um, the, the the embodiment of uh, Leland Palmer when he was taken over by Bob. And he's uh, trying to he's trying to actively in this movie um steer Laura to find out uncover the truth about evil Leland. Uh, and there's even a really interesting video of it on the YouTubes, which I will post when this show goes live uh, on the Facebook group page so people can check it out. Okay. And it would make a lot of sense because he came to him as a child. Um mm-hmm. so yeah, it's the and we know that people that are Taken by the Black Lodge, so to speak, um, they are trapped in the form that they were taken in the Black Lodge. So. And it, it would make sense that that spirit could interact with even Leland, because again, time and space don't matter in the Black Lodge. Yep. So yes, uh, okay, all right, I'm into it. I I, I can mm-hmm. go there with you. Um, but uh, yeah, it's you know all of that stuff is what makes lynch films lynch films in that there is something surreal and dreamlike and and symbolic in a way that feels if not a little distancing uh it it definitely feels private to lynch in some ways and when you kind of follow the threads of his logic through his films uh, I feel kind of proud when I walk away from a David Lynch movie and and feel like I I feel pretty good about my understanding of that movie and what happened from not just in terms of plot, but like I understand a lot of the, the uh, symbolism being used in the film and, and, and why like all the electricity stuff and um, all the angel stuff, you know, like the ring and that kind of thing of like, just feeling like, okay, I can get my arms around Firewalk with me now in a way that the first time I saw it, I was like, I don't know what the fuck that was. Yeah. And like some of it's very narrative, but then there are these, you know, flights of fancy 
that only because we've been so hip deep in Twin Peaks do I feel like, oh yeah, no, that makes sense. Of course. Yes. Uh, they, they're absolutely using this garbanzio <laughs> as sustenance. And, and of course that is cold from the tears of children and blood. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's all a weird logic, but once you start to buy into it, it, it becomes somewhat more manageable. Um, all right, here's what we're going to do, Duncan. I, I feel good about this. I'm in a good place. So I feel like what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little uh, missing pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think we, I, I think we, we just do some highlights. Like what, what yeah. was important? What did we enjoy? Then we shift gears, wrap things up with uh, the heavy mythology of Secret World and and hopefully in a way that is not uh ridiculous. So okay. but it's kind of ridiculous. But but it's kind of three chunks, right? There's the Lewis and Clark pre-modern stuff. Mm-hmm. There's the 60s stuff or you know 40s, mm-hmm. 50s, 60s stuff. And then there's the Twin Peaks stuff. Yeah. Of like here's what the town is. But anyway, um okay. Uh, let's do this. For all right, before we we do, I, I've got a couple of proposals here about missing pieces. One, oh, right, go for it. Uh, one, I just want to say what a champ you are uh, for staying up late to do this. This you are you are a. The listeners should should do nothing but Duncan is great memes uh, out of this <laughs> show, unless of course you wanted to do some Chris Isaac stuff. Um, the other thing is I. I my my take on missing pieces is there's a whole lot of who gives a shit. There's some great stuff, and then there's some stuff I don't care about. Yeah, there's a lot of it. Like, is there's well, a lot of flabby sections to certain scenes that are easily chopped back to create what you get in Firewall with me. Like, so there's there's not necessarily a whole lot of additional content in here which benefits the story. What you do get, though, is a lot of Twin Peaks characters and regulars, which you would like to see, uh, generally, who did not make the final cut, uh, which is a huge selection of the cast who did turn up to play in this one, um, who did roles, who just didn't get their scenes shot in because, once again, David Lynch, when crunch time came, realised that the the story was more interesting in telling was Laura Palmer and not really much else in Twin Peaks. Yeah, and you know, there like there's some Pete Martell and Josie Packard stuff. Uh Del Mill. Ed and Nadine. Uh there's some Ed Nadine, there's some Ed Norma, there's some uh I there's a bit more uh Shelley and Leo, I think. Yeah. Um Yeah, I mean it's that kind of stuff and it's all kind of fun character stuff. Uh in particular the Pete Martell scene is funny. Um, it's it's very very funny, but you get um you get some Truman Hawk and Andy, uh, some Lucy. Oh my god! Um, and a tiny tiny little scene. I mean, it's like I can see why they're cut out, and uh, what what confuses me a lot about them is why, and it's obviously because they're not pertinent to the story really. Um, but it, it was like a weird kind of lip service to to try and segue them in that it, that weirdly. Once again, I don't want to touch on what we're going to be moving on to, but the scenes that we get, all these cut-out scenes, weirdly echo a lot of the 
informative narrative of what the third season is um, that we're going to be talking about as of next week. So, and you'll see what I mean when we start. Well, you've seen. All right. First so, episode? no, not all of it. I just dipped my toe. Right. Uh, cool. So, well, it, it kind of follows a lot of that. But anyway, let's. There are there are a lot of scenes we are going to tackle. I think the ones which make sense in terms of expanding out stories are given things that we didn't get within the movie that are worth touching on. Yeah, I think there's one giant one. Uh, but I, I feel like we should trade a little bit. So, Duncan, you start. You tell me a scene that the listeners ought to know from the missing pieces. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I will go with... Hmm. I will go... But I'd like, I can already touch on it, so it makes sense to kind of go back to it. Um, the alternative ending of this movie, and our extension to the ending, is the the, the Annie character post um, the Black Lodge all bloodied up, lying in the bed as a mirror image of the kind of scene that we saw of Laura seeing Annie lying in her bed uh, with the bloody nose, etc., repeating the same lines of writing in your diary while a nurse notices that on her finger is said jade ring, um, which she then takes off her hands and starts wearing um, and then walks out towards a mirror. Um, So yeah, I would say that's a a fairly important scene because the ring exists beyond uh, the point. And Annie got out the lodge. So, you know, How's Annie? Annie's not okay. Uh, Annie's in the hospital. Yeah. And speaking of how's Annie, I don't know if this is necessarily important. Maybe it will be, but it's just the the tag on the season two ending of, you know, how's Annie? How's Annie? And then the, you know, smack into the uh, the mirror and he comes out of the bathroom, or like uh, Hawk and uh, um, Sheriff Truman kind of bust in on him, and he's like, "Sorry, I, I, I hit my head, and I found it funny, Harry. You see how that's funny, right?" And then uh, they're like, "We need to get you back in bed because clearly you are not well." And he's like, but I haven't brushed my teeth yet. And it's, again, I don't know that it's important, but it's kind of creepy and cool. Yeah. Agree. All right, your turn. Uh, so there's a there's a there's probably the most heartwarming, only heartwarming scene um, of the Palmer family altogether. And the reason I mention this is it doesn't necessarily move the story along at all. But it's in vast juxtaposition to every scene we see of them as a family in this movie. Um, <laughs> Leland Palmer comes home, declares that he's hungry and he needs his axe. In an over-the-top manner, they all sit at the dinner table. He talks about the Norwegians coming and tries to teach them how to say hello and what their name is. Uh, and they all descend into a hugely over-the-top laughter scene. Um, and it's the only scene... I think we've ever seen of the Palmer family as an actual family. Yeah. It, and in a weird way, I think the movie's right to keep everything kind of tonally 
distinct, you know, because we yep. spend so much time with uh, Chet. And uh, anyway, um, but yeah, it it was kind of nice to see that moment. Um, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit the big one, uh, the extended Philip Jeffries sequence. <laughs> fucking amazing is like it's worth watching missing pieces for that because it's kind of the centerpiece of it anyway well yeah this was what they they sold the, the premise on of the stuff that had been cut david lynch had always said that of the stuff that was cut there was there was more bowie now it's yeah. worth saying that the extended bowie sequences don't actually amount to much more than maybe about three or four minutes but it's still three or four minutes that i feel could have been left in the movie and whilst it would have been maybe a bit disorientating and confusing for viewers, uh, it would be no more disorientating and confusing for your viewers than the fact that Bay was all of a sudden there um, and then disappeared. Yeah, and I, I feel like it makes a little more sense of it in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, like, all right, so he's in, well, we talked about it a little bit earlier where he's in, like, this hotel in Tangiers or some shit. And you know, is leaving the hotel. And then all of a sudden he is at the FBI offices. And when he disappears, he goes back to the hotel, but there's like this scorched area on the wall when he returns and he's like, ah, I'm so hurt (laughs) y'all. And, and, and in between all of that too, there's kind of the extension of the scene above the convenience store and which has, you know, Jurgen are now doing a weird little dance as the lumberjack character. Um, there's a little bit more with the be masked gentleman. Uh, in there, a, a bit more conversation with, um, the grandmother and, um, the man from another place seems like she said something or maybe I, i'm just imagining things things get a little surreal in the black lodge and uh whatnot but um yeah so that's all extended out a bit more i don't know that it adds a ton more mythology but it's awesome yep uh, right uh, for me there is a one near the end of the, the sequences which like to me like that way where you watch something and you feel tense, like really tensed up when you start watching something. Uh, Laura is about to go and meet James Hurley. She's hiding in the bushes. Leland Palmer is walking up and he stops and he stares right at her and holds his stare for an abnormal amount of time and then starts walking back towards, you know, up towards the house while she's still in the bushes. He gets closer and then turns around and stares back in the bushes again, holds it for a while and then ultimately goes in the house. Um... Once again, doesn't necessarily extend things out, except Leland is a scary motherfucker. Um, right. It's very unsettling to watch. It's like, it rewise is terrifying. It's like really, really terrifying. Um, and yeah, that's a scene worth mentioning. All right. Uh, I'm kind of out. I, I feel like those are the, the big hits, but if you've got some more of that... Yeah, I've got one more that I want to mention, uh, only because it adds a bit of flesh to the bones of something that was mentioned earlier on uh, in the actual TV show. The log lady says that she'd heard screams in her statement in the TV show, and we get to see her in her cabin 
hearing the screams and the after effect on her face, the pain that she goes through when it happens. I think it's a really powerful scene. Um, and it's got Log Lady, which is never a bad you know, thing. Worth its, yeah, worth its weight in gold. All right. Uh, that is the missing pieces, a cursory look at the missing pieces. Uh, but, you know, it's worth your time if you're a completist for sure. And there's. Man, there's Some, like there's a lot of humor. The humor that they talk yes. about that's not in the movie is in the missing pieces. So it's all in there. All the humorous scenes are pretty much. There's a lot of dark scenes, but there's a lot of humorous scenes in there. Yeah, they're like the. I'll, I'll my honorable mention would be the scene where Chris Isaac beats the shit out of the uh, sheriff, and <laughs> then bends a rod. So long. It, yeah, it's but, really long, but it's very funny to me. It's it reminds me of the the waiter scenes in season two yeah that that how david lynch likes to just make the same joke go up like maybe five or six beats longer than should be funny but i did find myself chuckling at it so all right um let us turn our attention then to the final piece of uh tonight's entertainment it is a book uh released in october 2016 um the secret history of Twin Peaks, uh, written by Mark Frost. Um, the summary <laughs> is all right. Let, let's just hit it, uh, and and we'll just kind of pause uh, along the way. Um, yep. The book takes the form of a dossier of documents, letters, clippings, and notes compiled by an unnamed individual referred to as the archivist. The dossier was recovered in a steel lockbox at an undisclosed crime scene and has been assigned by the FBI uh, Deputy Director Gordon Cole to an FBI analyst with the initials TP for review and investigation. Uh, The documents are presented in chronological order, beginning with the exploration of the area by the Lewis and Clark Expedition, correspondence with President Thomas Jefferson, and Meriwether Lewis's mysterious death in 1809. The next section concerns the flight of the Nez Perce people from the area with their leader, Chief Joseph. Both Lewis and Joseph are mentioned to have experienced vision quests in the area where Twin Peaks would be founded. Uh, So let's pause there. Let's talk about that shit. Um, So, yeah, it starts off uh, way back with Lewis and Clark uh, running around in the Pacific Northwest um, they run into a, a tribe of, uh, Native American people who, um, talk to them about, uh, this place. It's a, you know, uh, a place where, uh, of the great spirits and whatnot. And the thing that this summary leaves out, uh, with all the Thomas Jefferson stuff is that apparently Duncan, mm-hmm. the founding fathers were into some Freemason shit. Which is not wrong, <laughs> right? Which that's that's the thing about secret history of Twin Peaks is it mixes in a lot of real world facts with a bunch of crazy make em ups, and yeah. it's it's super convincing. Like it, it's yeah. a really fun read. Um, yeah, Mark Frost. Mark Frost has done his due due diligence here when it comes to his research, and he's made it really good. It's worth noting as well. This is Mark Frost's first involvement back with Twin Peaks since season two of Twin Peaks. He didn't have anything to do with Firewalk with me because he's oh, off right. making a what's the name of that movie directed? 
Oh, I'll come back to me. It's my niece. Uh, he wrote and directed a movie when that one was happening, so he had no involvement with it at all. So it was written mostly by David uh, Lynch and another writer who worked on a TV show. Robert so this Engel, is returning. Yeah. yeah, this is him returning back. Robert Engel, is it Engel? Yeah, who co-wrote Firewalk with me. Should have mentioned it up front, and then I didn't. Yeah. Also, things I should have mentioned earlier, uh, Renette Pulaski is played by Phoebe Augustine. She's amazing. She's yeah, really, she's really, really good, good in that. Uh, yeah, so um, so this is Mark Frost returning. So yeah, this is alternative history shit, which I do happen to really enjoy. I love other people's takes on historical things. You know where they just start mixing in a what if uh, scenario, and yeah. So n- now I will like, show my ignorance of American history here. I don't really know much about Lewis and Clark at all. Very um, famous, Duncan. Very famous. It was an explorer. I know that much. But, yes, they, uh, they carved their way across the continent. They were the, the first people uh, recorded to have made their way from east to west. Um, and uh, uh, brave, brave explorers finding an, an unclaimed continent that inconveniently had a lot of people on it. Well, there you go. Uh, so yeah, so it follows that. Um, what notable things that come out of this is not only that there's a a connection with uh, the Freemasonry, but these American Indian tribes people uh, or Native Americans um, have in their possession a piece of jewelry which looks like it should not have been crafted by them, um, and it's a certain jade green ring uh, with a symbol that looks like an owl um, on it which would be our Jay Green Ring, which has been uh, featured in Firewalk With Me, which I like the idea of because this is Frost saying, right, I wasn't involved with that Firewalk With Me thing, but I will <laughs> I will play the game. Right, I'm game into means, it. Yeah, which means that you set that up. Well, let me tie it in. And he ties it in really, really well. So this is where it comes from in terms of the canon of the story. So it right. comes from the original, what I would imagine, who are like Hawk's ancestors, essentially. Caca! nice yeah well and they say later in in secret history that he was in fact of the nespers uh people so um but yeah so we we have the the origin of the jade ring as being this totem of protection from back in the day um you have these uh freemasons who, in addition to just being a secret society that, I don't know, fucks each other. I don't know what you do in a secret society. But, um, that's terrible. I shouldn't say that. Like, Baz is a Freemason, is he not? Yeah, but American Freemasonry is different from British Freemasonry. So. Alright, well, in ours, apparently... And for all I know, he fucks everyone. He's a very <laughs> right. corny bastard. Sure, so. sure. Well, you know, he's got the kids to prove it. Um, <laughs> but... In addition to all the buggery, Duncan, apparently they were also into like paranormal and stuff like that. Like there, there's a, a thread through secret history about government agencies being interested in the paranormal and and mm-hmm. and trying to understand it in some way. And uh, so the when they talk about in this summary the mysterious death of Meriwether Lewis was that um, he seemed to be in possession of information about, you know, the uh, the the Twin Peaks secret woods 
as well as, you know, maybe the beginnings of a greater spiritual understanding, perhaps. Um, and so was uh, essentially assassinated for it, that he knew too much, Duncan. Yep. And, um, and so then we flash a, a bit forward and, and yeah, it's about, uh, chief Joseph who again was a, you know, a historical figure that, um, very famously, uh, resisted, uh, being, being moved off his land and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, it's on the book. You should read it. Um, and that gets the, what, what ties that into, um, all the twin peaksy stuff is that they recognize, you know, this very spiritual place, which is essentially Glastonbury Grove. Mm-hmm. And that at a at the point where they're about to be driven from their land and forced onto a reservation, they decide to resist. Chief Joseph goes to kind of makes a pilgrimage to Glastonbury Grove to commune with the spirits and and get uh, some kind of guidance. And as a result, there there are these sort of you know apocryphal stories about Chief joseph leading his men into situations where they seem to you know pass through a mountain or something Mm -hmm. uh that there's something almost magical about the way that uh uh chief joseph and his men are are moving around and being able to escape and stuff and eventually obviously the luck runs out because you know when relentlessly hunted by white men the (laughs) the native americans didn't stand much chance and there's a series of swindles and 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 uh, underhanded deals which uh, derail the negotiations of Chief Joseph with the American government, which was supposed to restore them to their land in agreement that there would be no hostilities and stuff like that. And Chief Joseph ends up getting kind of framed because one of the other chiefs in the Nez Perce uh, tribe does escape you know escapes with with uh some of the the other tribesmen who've surrendered uh or been captured and he's held responsible for that guy saying that he kind of he knew about it or helped participate in the escape and therefore the agreement to return the people back to the land that they once had or once lived on because you know no property um then uh, be, because of this indiscretion with the escape, all of that is null and void, screwing the people once more out of a return to their home. Yeah. And so Chief Joseph says, uh, is, is it him that says it? Where, where is the, the, like, the curse part of it? Did it come from him? Where he's like, basically, we got crawled at it so much that the spirits that help protect us eventually are going to take their revenge? Yeah, I thought it was him. I I thought so too, but again, I only read it once, and there's been so much Twin Peaks crammed into my brain, Duncan. Plus, Sometimes it's not. Yeah, it's not the easiest book to read because it is a collection of. It's like a dossier. So it's a collection of government documents, letters, historical, you know, letters written down, d- diary entries, journal entries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it really is. It's not the. It's not like reading a book. It's like kind of going through some case files. Yeah, and I do like that style, but it is also like, okay, what's there's a lot of dates here, you know? Yeah. 
it feels almost like you're studying for a history test instead of reading a book yes. sometimes. But mm-hmm. but then it also gets into UFOs and shit, and then you're like, oh, right on. Okay, let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but so that's kind of the early part of the book is is these stories about like yes, way back in the day the people around this area knew that there was something weird about this people and that people lived kind of in harmony with it with at least a very rudimentary understanding of there was something powerful there. Mm-hmm. And anything else do we want to move forward and get into the Milfords, the Doug Milford story? Yeah. Cause this is the bit that really excites me because this, this was the most minor of minor characters. Um, in Twin Peaks, the TV show, who is the pretty much the, the driving force of the the two thirds of this um, this book. Yeah. Um. So yeah, let's jump onto that. That's that's the exciting bit for me. Okay. So here comes the synopsis for this portion. The town of Twin Peaks is founded when two families, the Packards and the Martells. AKA, you know, uh, Andrew Packard and our binge, uh, yeah, Andrew Packard and see you next Tuesday, Catherine Martell, um, formed two rival sawmills on either side of the river. In 1927, a young boy scout, uh, Andrew Packard and Doug Milford see a giant figure in the woods during a camping trip. Douglas Milford, a minor character in the television series, becomes one of the key figures in the book. Uh, as you just said, I could have skipped that. Milford's involvement, and then I commented on it. I'm wasting time. Milford's involvement also, uh, it, I hated that character on the show. Um, Milford's involvement with the, the with the U, the Roswell UFO incident, uh, while w- with the U.S. Army Air Forces, sees him assigned to investigate UFO sightings and abduction claims for Project Sign, Project Grudge, and Project Blue Book, and to establish listening post alpha a SETI facility near twin peaks in 1940 three children including maggie colson carl rod uh maggie colson the log lady carl yep. rod the trailer park owner of the mm-hmm. uh fat trout and alan Trehearn go missing in the woods reappearing with strange triangular markings on their bodies and no memory of that day um okay so, uh, that is a lot of stuff, and there's even way, way more in the book, obviously. So, Doug Milford, who later becomes uh, the uh, newspaper owner, right? Yeah, so he's, yeah. The one that, he's the one that dies with ha- by having sex with the, the Lana. young girl. Yeah, <laughs> Lana. boom so he, he that's him. His brother is the the long standing mayor of of Twin Peaks. We met him like literally. I think collectively he had about five minutes on screen. Um, it was a rather forgettable character, but yeah, uh, we he he is in the Boy Scouts. He is with like you say with Andrew uh, Packard. They stumble upon. The giant, I'm assuming, is what we're saying here. The giant from Twin Peaks. And what the class is a huge owl. Um, Near uh, can... Creepy Owl Cave. There's a lot of Creepy Owl Cave. Yes, yeah, so th- this is them. The From this point onwards, Douglas becomes kind of infatuated with the mystery surrounding his town. Um, like, specifically to do with Creepy Owl Cave, funnily enough. Um... 
and you know th- th- this kind of kicks off his journey. He is the the driving kind of force that links all the parts of this part of the story, all the all the the various different elements. Um, we'll just continue on with him. We can jump back and cover a couple of things. Uh, so he becomes a bit of a bit of a troublemaker. Um, not a particularly nice person. Gets hooked on alcohol. Ultimately ends up um, enlisting and finding a bit of discipline, a bit of order, but it kind of fucks up there as well. And the the the, the powers that be realise when they look at things that he may have an aptitude for intelligence, which gets him moved onto a different project, which ultimately leads him to Roswell in 1947. Um, so he gets in at that point of the potential existence of aliens, the crashed weather balloon, a.k.a. saucer. Um, and we, we kind of follow like his involvement with different members of government leading up to President Nixon, but what I love about this is they link it back through Jack Parsons, who was infamous um, black magic uh, believer, practitioner, mm-hmm. um, studied in the School of Philema under Alistair Crowley. And this is all real, by the way. Jack Parsons did that. So and the, uh, the also, L. Ron Hubbard stuff that runs through that story, too. So much that like he's his letters are quoted in the book. Or in yeah, because yeah, that, that is, one, once again, legit. Uh, Jack Parsons funded what would, would ultimately be, well, he was robbed of money, which would ultimately, uh, was robbed by um, L. Ron Hubbard, who stole Jack Parsons' woman, um, and uh, L. Ron Hubbard started the Church of Scientology from that. So that's all true as well. And Jack Parsons died under mysterious circumstances, a apparent quote-unquote accident. Uh, involving aviation fuel and explosives, um, which once again all happened. So the the fact that linking to that, I think, is pretty cool. Uh, Nixon is super interesting in this. Um, they kind of like Nixon appears in a lot of these alternative history things like that. But Nixon's fascination with Roswell and uh, the presence of potential extraterrestrials and how he looks at Milford as potentially his right hand man in this, um, in the grand scheme of things, and is maybe potentially removed from office because of it. You know, maybe not because of Watergate, maybe because he's poking his nose around a bit too much. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's set up. Which, once again, thinks pretty cool, even though, you know... It's Nick a deep state talking! <laughs> uh, that was my Nixon. It's terrible. It sounds like a dog barking in the distance. Um, <laughs> but it really does... Um, but yeah, so there's that. Uh, Milford becomes, you know, he, he, ultimately Nixon gives him a, a bit of information to do with that the you know aliens landed before Roswell. There's a secret secret shadow government organization uh, which is not like uh, Majestic. Um, was it Majestic Seven? Seven. Majestic uh, MK Ultra. Yeah, it's all this stuff, yeah. all that fucking stuff. It's all linked into that. Um, and Milford becomes like a, almost like a kind of an off-the-books black op agent who ultimately returns back to Twin Peaks to take over the local newspaper from the the older sibling of Dr. Jacoby, uh, which is quite interesting. Um, 
and he eventually inherits the newspaper, but he's still doing work uh, on his own terms and establishes this base. Yeah, as well LPA. Yeah, on top of the mountain, um, and brings in some uh, local Air Force individuals, one of which is our good buddy, the the Major, mm-hmm. um, who's introduced into the story. Uh, the major becomes close with Milford and ultimately becomes his successor when Milford dies. Um, it it kind of tracks through elements that happen within Twin Peaks. So like the, the spit-out chart of the Cooper, Cooper, Cooper message is run by Milford and Milford tells the major to tell um, Cooper about it, which links into stuff that happened in the show as well. Um uh, what else am I missing? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, like, I'm trying to think. Like there, there's so much with that stuff because it gets into there's the three foot owl that Milford yes. sees as a kid, and that's what yep. you know sparked all that. Um, um, the log lady, after her experiences, uh, this is actually really good because uh, it fleshes out that story, which is mentioned in the diary as well. Uh, so it's once again appropriated and taken in a, a good context for this book but the the log lady after her experience out there becomes like in tune with the forest she yeah, lives right. out there etc um, she ultimately meets a man who she marries and on the, their wedding night he's a fireman and he goes out to put a blaze and dies horribly in a fire um, and she goes out into the woods and there's a fallen tree which she cuts a bit of wood off which she, I think, claims is maybe the reincarnation of her, well, her the, husband. The wood or, told her what part to cut out. Yeah, So, and that's how she inherited her, her log. That's how she got the log, so yeah. that's pretty cool. And the book speaks very highly of her. Yeah, um, her, well, her, her log, her log is her dead husband, still with yeah. her forever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's that aspect uh, of... There's, there's a, yeah, basically a lot of what the, a lot of what the that part of the book focuses on is more to do with alien activity and not necessarily active. It's alien activity in around Twin Peaks, um, and its connection, maybe, to the Black Lodge, uh, which they don't really go into detail about the Black Lodge, but they link it into Laura Palmer's death. Um, which you touch on loosely. What, what what is more interesting for me is the the backstory of certain characters and the where certain characters end up after. All right. Well, let's that hit that sense. then. Um, that is our last section, and we'll we'll circle back to UFOs and stuff as needed. Um, yeah. The last section covers the events of the television series, including the murder of Laura Palmer, the backstories of several other characters, including Josie Packard. Lawrence Jacoby, Ed and Nadine Hurley, and Norma and Hank Jennings are revealed in extracts from a book on notable local families by Dr. Jacoby's brother, Robert. The archivist is revealed to be Major Garland Briggs, whose final entry in the dossier notes that something's wrong with Dale Cooper and ends with the word Mayday. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Dale Cooper comes to see him and ends with the words Mayday. Yeah. Uh, the FBI analyst notes that Briggs subsequently disappeared and Cooper's whereabouts are also unknown with files on them at the UAS, the USAF United States Air Force 
Duncan, for you and me. And mm-hmm. FBI classified well above top secret. She signs off her investigation notes as special agent Tamara Preston. Yes. So, Duncan. Yes. Shall we start with Hank? Or is that the cherry yeah. on top? Yeah, so, as last our listeners will remember, Hank um, violated parole uh, and was done for a series of bad things, uh, thus being locked up in prison, uh, one could imagine, for a very long time. What happens to poor old Hank? Well, Hank uh, apparently runs afoul of some distant cousin of uh, Jean Renault, who... kills him but it's not a quick death it's what he's stabbed uh several times and um ends up writing this letter on his deathbed that's all about what a piece of shit he is and how sorry he is for what a piece of shit he is and uh it's a very ignoble death to an awful person who never did anything good for anybody hey um but (laughs) Uh, yeah, it's, it's great because it's such a Hank way to go. He's just such a low ball piece of crap, uh, that he dies in a real low ball piece of crap way in prison. Um, which appeals to me. Sorry I died, everyone. (laughs) I mean, they go into a bit of the, like when they go into a bit of the history of him being a book, a book house boy, um, and how they were all connected, all these like Truman, etc., and all the rest, and basically where he started going, like his his family background, which maybe led to him going slightly off the rails. Um, one that I thought was was quite interesting, um, and kind of really, we already kind of knew, but like oh, underlies things a bit better. So the bomb that went off in the the bank killed <laughs> Andrew Packard and killed Pete Martell. Um, so both those characters die. However, Audrey lives. Uh, Audrey survived the blast. All right. So yeah, and Del, poor Del Mibble, no longer with us as well. Yes. Um, I love him. Um, yeah. So Audrey survives, but ends up in the hospital, kind of fucked up for a while. Mm-hmm. And um, her father, one Benjamin Horn, um finds a letter from her that is like, I know what you're up to. And you know, this is all, uh, this is not this. She doesn't say this is all your fault. She says this, I'm going to expose all this. Yeah. And, but ends up getting blown up in the process. So he feels this racking guilt and, you know, stays by her side and everything. But, um, and I, I, what was the back end of that? Was it like he comes out as a slightly better person? Pretty much, yeah. You know. I mean, he, he essentially, because Catherine Martell becomes a recluse, essentially, after her brother and her husband dies. And she's no longer the, the powerhouse player that she was before. She ultimately capitulates and sells the land off to Ben. Um, so all that power that she got up there just ultimately fizzles away. Uh, she very rarely speaks to anyone at all. Um, and, you know, Ben Horn gets all this, but Ben Horn doesn't go away and start building ghost food, development, ghost food developments or anything that he was going to do anyway because of the guilt that he has for, right, for right. what happened to Audrey. Because we all assumed that Audrey was going there to highlight the bank's dirty deeds. 
Uh, and that's not what she was doing at all. She was waiting for the press to arrive um, so she could air her father's dirty deeds um, yeah. before the bomb went off. So um, that's what happens there. We get we get the Josie Packer backstory, which is presented in kind of a cool way because it's all Agent Cooper's notes yeah. about Josie Packard. And it, you know, it's kind of what you know. Uh, there's a way more detail to it about like where she was born and what her real name was and all that kind of yeah. stuff. But the the idea that he had compiled all this and just kind of left it in the bookhouse so that uh, Sheriff Truman would just read it on his own and he wouldn't have to kind of lay all this out for him. Um, yeah, that was kind of nice. Um, yeah, um, Doctor Jacoby loses his job as a doctor. Oh, dude, when you finally get the, here's what the glasses are. Yes, All right, amazing. folks, listen. It's actually amazing. <laughs> so Dr. Jacoby, it, it may come as some surprise to you, is a little bit of a spiritualist at heart, uh, believes in the kind of the holistic mind-body solution to problems. Ayahuasca. That's what he's been on. He's been taking that trippy fucking toad medicine <laughs> right. shit that makes you trip balls. He, um, yeah, he's with the Aleut people for a while. Um, and he ends up... The, 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 the thing with the glasses is that the... Wait, the right brain is less, re, less receptive to blue... And the left brain is less receptive to red. So you wear something that emphasizes those colors on the appropriate eye, which gives the whole world kind of a purple hue, but Mm -hmm. helps with, you know, cognition and like just being a, a better, more focused person and stuff. Anyway, it's just a bunch of crazy crackpot theories and Dr. Jacoby has a bunch of those. And yeah. it's wonderful that all yeah, the he, Dr. Jacoby stuff is great. Yeah, because we get like a whole backstory about Nadine. We find out that Nadine actually lost her eye in a hunting accident with Big Ed. Big Ed Shaw. <laughs> well, we knew that. We did, That was on the show. Yeah. Yeah, but we get the whole backstory about how she obsessively followed him everywhere. Which yeah. we get in the, show. the tractor into his truck or whatever. Yeah, the whole backstory about her mental health issues um, stemmed from her mother I'll t- uh, through her. If, if you want to have a good time, Duncan, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm telling this to, to the listeners as well, Ooh. you read this section of the book because it's one Deputy Hawk. Regaling the story. Of uh, what happened that day at Big Ed's gas farm, and mm-hmm. and how like Nadine did this gymnast jump off of the tractor before she could be hurt, and meanwhile, little James, a young James Hurley, a young dumb James Hurley, is hanging out at the same time, and the the scene that gets painted in this whole story, as well as Deputy Hawk just being awesome, and relating the story in a way where he's just like look this dumb fucking james kid is just not gonna be a winner and also i don't know nadine seemed okay and you know it was better than him moping around about norma so 
and I, I love the line about like with his good looks and her athletic body it was only a matter of time before they were between the sheets something like that because uh, he was all piney for Norman, blah, blah, blah. But I thought all that stuff was really nice. Um, what else? Like, uh, the Hank stuff was fun. Yeah. Like, like I say, though, like, Jacoby ultimately falls foul of the medical authorities and he's stripped of his doctor tail. So he yeah. can no longer practice psychiatry, which links in very nicely to where that character ends up. Um, oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Because that's where yep. I stopped watching was when I was like, "What is he it's doing?" Like right at the beginning, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like when you, it's one of the, he's the first character you see from Twin Peaks, and uh, so, did they yeah. did they talk about Donna? I don't remember them saying much about Donna. In uh, no, because they focus more on the the parents. I think Donna's parents. Yeah, um, uh, how they moved into the neighborhood. Um, so Doc Hayworth gets quite a bit of mentioning. Um, who I think it's actually Doc. Did you know that Doc A was actually played by Mark Frost's father? I did not know that. Did not know. Yeah, he passed away just after he filmed the scenes for the third season. Oh, that's such a so, shame. But also kind of wonderful that they got yeah, to do that. Yeah. A lot of them, a lot of them, did, like the log lady as well, obviously passed away after. And she looks ill. She was dying of cancer when she shot her scene. So, um, so yeah, so you've got. Got that you've got we, a bit of the back. Agent Look. Cooper isn't really talked about that much, other than what we know is, you know, he's missing. Yeah, we get um, some of Frank Truman, which is uh, uh, Harry Truman's brother. Yeah, um, who is a character that will be in the new season as well, played by Robert Forster, um, which makes me very happy. Because he was originally supposed to be cast for Harry Truman, funnily enough. And oh, wow, okay. Yeah, the guy that played uh, Harry Truman did not want to return to the Twin Peaks. So, um, yeah, so Frank Truman. Um, what else? Uh, who else do we get a bit of info on? Obviously, The Log Lady, which is a really touching story. It's really well worth written, uh, reading. Yeah. Um, uh, nothing really about Audrey other than... She she made it. Yeah, she made it. So, um, and yeah, I think that's still, there's a, there's a bit about the horns, but not a huge amount. Right, Hawk's still hanging uh, out, being awesome. No, no surprises yep. there. Um, a slight bit about Andy, but not too much. Yeah, um, that that was more of just like Andy's touched, but he's also surprisingly helpful in the right circumstances. Yeah. And again, from Deputy Hawk, who's just like, look, Andy is, uh, he he talks about his gossiping uh, yeah. as being sort of his superpower. He's really, yeah, he's really good at, he seems to pick up all that information. Um, yeah, that, that that's, that, there's that about, uh, they obviously cover that. Um, I can't think of any other characters I mean, that I know. The really compelling in- stuff is, oh, in, uh, God, what did, what did they say ever became of Sarah Palmer? It was something tragic, I think. Didn't she just die? Uh, yes. No, no, no. Sarah Palmer like lives in the same house. Oh, wow. Okay. Like She lives in the same house, basically, when, not quite a recluse, but trapped in the memory of a family that is not there. Oh, sure. Which, that, that'll happen to you. 
she's in the new season as well. Oh, good. So much stuff. Oh, my God. So much stuff we're going to cover in like the next couple of weeks, which are literally going to fucking melt your faces off, ladies and gents. <laughs> um, literally cannot fucking wait to start talking about this. This has been building up for months. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the main... I think the, the main things that are quite interesting about the book to take away from it is this idea of involvement of aliens, um, which was touched on in the show, but never really went into any great detail. Um, the, but the they also of, talk about it being transdimensional as opposed to potentially yes. intergalactic. So it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to be like a heaven-hell thing. It could be, could be somewhere else. Um, oh, we should talk about the nature of the spirits of the Black Lodge. Because, you know, you know, as we discussed early on when we were talking about the book, that it was like there was sort of this Indian burial ground curse kind of vibe to the story. <laughs> yeah. That these spirits have, you know, become angered and are, are just getting their revenge. But then later, it's more like, no, 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 probably those, the Nez Perce people were talking to spirits from the White Lodge, potentially. Mm-hmm. And because again, same place, same location, you just go there with love instead of fear, and you're good. Yeah. And so potentially they were dealing with the White Lodge, but the Black Lodge just has a little bit more inroads because <laughs> people are kind of shitty. Mm-hmm. And that all of that stuff, the the spirits within the Black Lodge exist in a way that uh how did uh he describe it like the protozoa that comes out of your faucet in the water mm-hmm. of that's how they view humanity that there's this cold kind of like well we'll play with them they're just toys and that's kind of chilling to me and and informs bob in a lot of ways for me as well yeah i think um what was I going to say uh, about like the fact that they made, like they link it back to the, the book links some really interesting stuff to the importance of things like Owl Cave, the importance of Glastonbury Grove, um, like the importance of the major, like why the major couldn't say things and then could say things and then couldn't say things um, was because well, obviously Milford was directing them to a certain point. Um, Blue uh, Operation Blue Rose, um, or Blue Book, sorry. Uh, that's mentioned, Blue Rose is mentioned as well. Um, what was the Blue Rose thing? I don't remember that. So so Blue Rose is the group. Um, that's uh, Thingy's group. That's uh, Agent uh, uh, Cole, Cole's group, Gordon Cole's group. Oh, right, 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 right. Okay. That's, they're, they're, the, they're the Blue Rose group within the FBI, so that covers him, uh, uh, Albert uh, would have covered David Bowie. Would have covered Chet. Um, covers uh, Tamara Preston. One one presumes. Yep. yep. Um, Dale Cooper uh, would have covered what's his face. Um, Wendell Merrill. These were all people of the the, the kind of Blue Rose group. Um, it's why the Blue Rose kind of start like depending on what you you watch in terms of the Twin Peaks box set that I have, a Blue Rose starts to become really prominent in a lot of the. The symbolism and that's to do with that uh, so that gets mentioned um, 
And yeah, I can't think of anything else which is like a massive revelation. It's just really good at filling in some details and giving you some really cool backstories about how long some of this has existed and when it starts to become a bit more in- interesting and when Twin Peaks starts to get built up around it, the impact that, you know, the, the people have. Like, it tells you a bit about the Bookhouse Boys um, and their origins and stuff like that. It's, it's a really good read. I, what I would suggest, I would say to Bo, if you have the opportunity, if you find it, I would buy the book anyway because what I found was sitting down with the book and listening to the audiobook and looking at like the case files as well as like pictures and stuff like that was a really quite cool and interactive experience for reading. But the the actual audiobook is voiced by many of the characters of Twin Peaks. So that whole section you were talking about Hawk talking about Big Ed and Nadine, that's read by Hawk. Um so like you're reading his case notes hearing his voice uh, very similar to the Ziki Diary Laura Palmer, like you're hearing Cheryl Lee read as Laura Palmer as you're reading her diary. So it's is worth checking it as well. Um and yeah, I think that's about it. Yeah, um, you know, there's probably going to be stuff as we get into the uh, the new season, uh, Twin Peaks. There's the stuff Return. that we will be able to point back, definitely. That's why I, I recommended we, we went through this, because I picked out about two things, um, specifically, that I mean, the fact that they mention a bit more about David Bowie's character in, you know, the, the secret history, and that character gets a lot of mentions, um in the new season as well. So, you know, they, they carry themes through and a lot of them are given a bit more backstory here. And like I said, at the very start, there will be a brand new book coming out in October, which is, I think it's the Twin Peaks dossier, secret dossier, I think it's what it's called. And it will cover what has happened in the interim to the characters from the point of this book to the new season starting. And we will cover that book. We will. We will, because that will not be that far after we finish running our our things, so I think we could probably give ourselves a good couple of weeks after the show finishes, after we're finished recording, get through the book and then come back and, and cover it here, which would be a nice way to kind of cap out the 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 overall Twin Peaks experience. Right, we'll, we'll do the due diligence and put the capper on it, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, so again, we'll probably reference back to your secret history of Twin Peaks a bunch. It's a really fun read, especially if you like those kind of all, you know, like Duncan was saying, the alternative history uh, books that present it. Like, none of this feels untrue, uh, even though it's all made up, but not all of it. Some of it's really true. Shut up. Um, (laughs) But all of it is really entertaining. It's woven in in such a way that um, it, it feels strangely authentic to both the show Twin Peaks and to actual history. Um, and it's weird to be going into this new season thinking like, well, the thrust of the show is about what, what's been going on in the black lodge with Dale Cooper, what's going on with evil Dale Cooper, mm-hmm. what's up with Annie, how's Annie, um, what about like, yeah, I mean, those are my big ones. And, and also because I know that Dr. Jacoby was living out in the middle of nowhere, I was already like, okay, I'm, uh, let's do this. Um, so, yeah, I kind of expect it, you know, coming off of uh, Firewalk with me and reading uh, particularly se- Secret History, um, I'm kind of prepared for it to be a little more surreal, you know? Uh, yep. Yeah. 
regardless of how ready you are for it to be surreal, be prepared to have your face melted off of the sheer velocity of David Lynch, who is pulling no punches, who is giving zero fucks, who is making the most Lynchian Lynch thing you've ever experienced. It's fucking glorious. All right. I I, I couldn't be more excited now. That sounds wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. All right. Duncan, we did it, man. Yes. This has been... Like, we knew this was going to be some heavy lifting. Yeah, but we needed to do it. And there's no easy way to split this up. You wouldn't want to do... We wanted to get the books done on an episode where we were talking about a movie, so it wasn't just a book episode. Yeah. And I feel like we've we've spoken a lot. The show is the longest one we've ever done. Um, But I feel that it's an experience that hopefully people will get through. It will put you in the right frame of mind. It will get you psyched up. You now have all the Twin Peaks you, knowledge you need if you have not started the new season. If you're carrying through with us, uh, you are as ready as you ever will be. You have now two seasons of the original run of Twin Peaks. You have the the secret diary of Laura Palmer. You have Firewalk with me with the missing pieces. And you now have the secret history of Twin Peaks. Ladies and gentlemen, you are ready for Twin Peaks to return. Mm. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, Duncan. I am ready for new Twin Peaks. New Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Let's do this. All right, folks. Next episode. Episodes one and two of Twin Peaks The Return. Some some modern shit. The the new hotness in Twin Peaks <laughs> land. Uh and and I for one cannot wait to have my face melted off into my lap possibly the floor as duncan has described uh i am uh i'm jazzed man it's fucking uh, bananas man honestly <laughs> all right all right enough of this uh duncan uh assuming people have are listening this far again this is another badge i don't even know what, what we call this badge i think it's just the the i don't know the gatorade badge for endurance uh yeah yeah that's about as good as anything else what how about, about the the exceptional award for achievement in the field of excellence. Yeah, that seems excellent. <laughs> <laughs> but where where can such award winners find you, Duncan? Uh, you can check me out at the podcast under the stairs, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash tputzcast or tputzcast.com. Um, search iTunes for podcasts under the stairs right now we're doing our top 10 series of shows looking at the 1970s as a decade it's pretty mental there's a lot of movies on there the most current episode features Bo so if you want to hear another two and a half hours of me and Bo talking Mm. uh, jump over check that one out it's a whole hell of a lot of fun that sounds good (laughs) you're not in this Billy Zane and you're not in the new season either why did they deny us oh I'm in it. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> you can go to legionpodcasts.com uh, for all the stuff I do. Uh, yeah, bunch of stuff. We just got a new show. Uh, the Psycho Semantic Podcast uh, with our good pal uh, Darren uh, is now uh, Darren Wilson. He is with us now, part of, part of the family. Uh, he's coming along for the ride, so uh, check that out. He's got a bunch of back, like he's been around doing this for a while. So uh, he, a lot of back episodes. Check those out. 
Um, and then, yeah, check the website. I'm, I'm punchy right now. I don't remember nothing, Duncan. All I can think <laughs> about is owls. Just owls flying behind my eyes, flapping their wings, scratching the back of my eye bulbs. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> Black Yukon sucker punch. Oh, <laughs> I could go for one. All right, Duncan. Uh, hey, man, thanks again. I appreciate it, as always, for, uh, for, for staying up especially this late so mm-hmm. um i guess the only thing left to do is to say thank you listeners we will be back next week with two new episodes of twin peaks two new new episodes and uh in the meantime say good night duncan good night duncan good night <laughs> oh my god oh that was the what's that is that about five hours